BBC Five Live. Here we go then. All right, laughing boy. That's me. Uh... <laughs> what? What was uh, that? There was the an interview. broken wind. There was no. It didn't break. No, wind. Is that a gastric thing? No. There was an interview in the. Have we started? I, it, it, I'll it, take it. it we have. So. There was an interview with uh, Jason Isaacs in a newspaper today. So I imagine it was that one. What, the one. The, the only one you read. Um, yes. Anglers Weekly. And Jason said that they were talking about Jason's facility for accents, which he does have a great That's facility brilliant. for accents. And the. All right, Jason. All right, Jason. And the paper basically said that he started doing it because when he came down to North London from Liverpool, he had to. He, he said he, he wanted to adopt an accent that fitted in, and he said I basically went full Ray Winston, <laughs> and that was what ah, that's what that was. Oh, I see. It was me going full Ray Winston because you've been doing a Ray Winston, you know. Well, it's just kind of a standard full-back position. I don't really have many... See, my Ray Winston sounds like Jason Statham, but your Ray Winston actually sounds like Ray Winston. No, it doesn't really. Yeah, it does. <laughs> I don't think so. Boy. Shut <laughs> it. Shut <laughs> Shut it. Anyway. Have you ever done that thing when you... I, ring... did, tell, I did do my Ray Winston impression to, to Ray, Ray Winston. Winston. Yeah, I've told you about and that. And did he do a you impression? No, he was just... I don't think he noticed the difference. I think he just thought, oh, everybody talks like this. <laughs> well, because wherever Ray Winston goes, everyone goes, all right. Yeah. Get out of my chair, <laughs> said. Oh, that's what you said. That's right. You told him to get out of your chair. And he very politely did. Well, he was taking ages and ages doing promotion for some film that he was doing. He was oh, taking ages. Oh, he had a book. He had a book. That's right. He had a book out. And uh, I was. I mean, he was in my studio. He was in my chair. You're in my chair. So... Uh, I turfed him out. But were you massively... I roughed him up a bit. Were you massively impressed by him? Oh, yeah, because he's Ray Winston. Yeah. I did it on stage with him in Bradford and I just spent the whole interview being massively impressed by him. Evan from Hobart in Tasmania has been on. Wow. Dear Softly Spoken and Dr. Hang on, hang on. Sorry, for the geographically challenged amongst us, Tasmania is where? You know Australia? Yes, I know it's in Australia. Sort of there. No, but top, bottom, left, right? Yeah. No, which of those? We're now going to wait until I'm told. I can't remember. Oh, I'm sorry. Just that you said it. So Hobart, right? This is Hobart, Tasmania. I'm just reading yeah, Hobart, which in that Monty I'm... in that Monty Python sketch is at home of the the a Hobart Muddy. Is that right? A Hobart Muddy. Yes. So, so Hobart. So Hobart. Yes. He says it there. It comes is, out here. Is precisely where I'm not going to proceed now until I've got actual yeah. a location. It's in the southeast of Tasmania. Which in Tasmania is where. South, just underneath Australia. So it's, so it's below. So it's so it's south of Australia. I understand that to be a correct observation. Thank you. So it's not in Australia when you said Australia. No, no, it's yeah, part of Australia. Yes, it's as part of Australia, but it's not in. The, yes, fine. Okay, so it's part of Australia that's off the bottom of Australia. It's the bit of Australia that will claim independence. From once main, this show is mainland. finished, <laughs> oh, once everything's okay. Oh, thank you for clarifying that. Well, thank you for picking me up on something that I, I just you said it about. with such authority. I thought you must obviously know. Hello to all our listener in Tasmania. Yes, yeah, that's just the one. Evan, uh, I'm an STL and a colonial common. I wish to relay an important point from your last show about one of the church's favourite nervous flyers, Rose. As devoted listeners know, Rose experienced a devastating case of KITS, which is Kermode-induced terror syndrome 
from what can only be described as the sneeze. You yeah. remember when you did I that? I do remember the sneeze. She's really, really nervous, and then yes. all of a sudden this loud, the unexpected noise. It was made worse by me attempting to apologise for it whilst doing it. As lovely, respectful hosts that at least one of your bad selves are, steps were taken to address the situation, including the idea of a podcast flight mode for nervous travellers. Unfortunately, during this time of necessarily measured discussion, the dialogue was interrupted by the good doctor's destruction of the BBC Radio 5 Live studio. The BBC Radio 5 Live studio, which started breaking itself, it was nothing to do with me. With much cacophony, din and uproar. Yeah, it started breaking itself. I didn't touch it. Members of the Church of a Nervous Travel Disposition or with infant canine soothing duties, this must have been a stressful experience for myself, however. The issue was more pressing. As I listened to your wonderful podcast while at my local fitness centre in Hobart, Tasmania, you know... Just under Yes, Australia. which is just off... Just I'm look, looking at the map now. There. Off the south-east. Soon to be independent. <laughs> As the destruction of the studio began, I was exercising with more than appropriately, more than appropriately heavy weights. The combination of the two leading to near-hyperbolic levels of potential disaster. Luckily, the crisis was averted by the swift thinking of other fitness centre patrons who were able to leap to my assistance and all was well. hope the next time Mark chooses to employ vigorous restructuring of the studio, he will uh, be doing so with a number of avid listeners in easily startled and unsettleable positions. You just have to think of the listener, Mark. Yeah, but the thing was, uh, in neither of those cases was I considering doing it beforehand. And in can... the case of the sneeze, mm-hmm. it was a sneeze. In the case of the studio falling apart, as incidentally I think everybody saw... Everybody saw anything that I wasn't anywhere near it. It was doing it, was doing it, was only called. They even had to send somebody in. Honest, Your Honour. It was now nothing to do with me. All right, so when the, when the, fine, when the ceiling falls in on you, I'll blame you. Is that what you've arranged? <laughs> yes. Is that going to happen? Comedy ceiling. Anyway, Evan concludes May the calming words of Simon be a guiding light to us all. Do you want to say hello to Kate Warner? She, who's the, she? the governor of Tasmania, according to Wikipedia. Do you think, she, in which case, she'll be the head of state, Kate Warner? There's also she'll a premier, Will Hodgman LP. Do you think there's also a Will Hodgman 45? No, I would think it's just the LP. Not, not, not a 78? I wouldn't think so. Or maybe he's live-streamed these days. OK. Come on, get with the grooves. OK. <laughs> That's very good, get with the grooves. Rose Stevens has been on uh, <clears throat> Nervous Flyer. This is the same Rose who we've just been talking about okay. from Evan from Hobart. Okay. OK, same one. Hearing you read out my email as I flew home from Ibiza last weekend proved a massively welcome distraction from my flying hypervigilance, despite the fact that I'd foolishly included the words plane crash in my own email, which is a bit of a schoolgirl error. I was just enjoying your banter about Mark's sneezing volume when there was that awful noise of Mark destroying the set in anger and fury, which was far enough off mic to be indistinguishable from the sound of the part of our undercarriage detaching. Mark's loud (laughs) shriek compounded the sense of impending doom, although I suppose I should be thankful for the fact that it cut off the anecdote which began have you ever been on a plane that's done that thing about going down and then the studio started to collapse and so we never got to the end I, did, be, I didn't say that <laughs> one of yours <laughs> bad flyers oh I know, no, I know what I know what I was going to say yeah. well don't say it no. bad flyers are prone to contagious panic and the continuing in-studio kerfuffle was making me think that I might push the flight attendant call button and order an emergency double vodka <laughs> <laughs> thanks to your constant reassurances Simon there was no need your soothing tone was reminiscent of those nice pilots who tell you it's just going to be a bit bumpy. <laughs> like the voice that Tom Hanks did in that plane when he was landing on the Hudson. 
as you fly into a storm, and I'd strongly suggest you embark, Simon, on a parallel career as a pilot, or at least feature in that British Airways celebrity emergency procedure video with Asim Chowdhury that they show before takeoff. You could do the bit about the oxygen masks, please, because Gillian Anderson makes it sound a bit scary. Anyway, you made me feel so much better that pretty soon I was shaking with laughter, tears running down my face as the string of crashes and indignant yelps continued. Consequently, I would like to apologise to any fellow passengers who might also be prone to contagious panic and could have misinterpreted my tears and uncontrolled shaking as a sign that I knew something dire about the flight <laughs> that they didn't. <laughs> Clearly, after all that emotion, I was too rattled to let the drinks, poly, drink, drinks trolley the pass drinks me poly. by. <laughs> when I did, <clears throat> I only had one in-flight beer, which is about four less than usual. So thanks again to both of you for your support. Although next time, I think I'll listen again to an old podcast so I can screen it for any loud bangs or incredulous shouting. Have you checked that the studio is okay before we move on? Well, because there was a big bit of gubbins that fell up. Yeah, the off. big it, it now appears to be safely strapped back on underneath the desk, but my, I didn't have anything to do with it falling out in the first place. So heaven only knows what this rickety old studio is likely to do. I think it's almost sparkling new. No, it's not. We've been doing the show from here for since we since we came here, which was when? <sighs> Who knows? Anyway. Are we in new? We're in new BH, aren't we? New broadcasting. Here. New broadcasting. Here. So, but it's not as new as it was. Well, let's hope that when Armando comes in, nothing falls on him. Although you're going to have to move your bag because that's oh, where Armando's going to sit. All right. Okay. What I'm going to do is I'm going to swap chairs because that's the one with the arms on it, and I want the arms. Oh, no, I'll have that one over there. What you? No, no, because I like to have a chair. Look, this one's. What's wrong with your chair? Okay, when you right, put your put your arms up. What? Right, you see. Okay. Yeah. See that lovely back support? I've got a host. See those lovely. Uh, you've got a host's chair. Yes. What have I got? I've got the naughty chair. stool. Right. What I would like is that chair, which is another chair that suggests that I actually have some status in this endeavour, rather than being forced to sit on. You know, this is like the world of Stalin again. <laughs> I want a dictator's chair. I, at the moment, I only have the chair of the Minister of Finance. <laughs> Stalin hated factionalism. That's a <laughs> Michael Palin. Yeah, Michael Palin is just genius. He is delightful, isn't he? He's really funny. He's really, really funny in The Death of Stalin. Where have you been, Michael? Come on, do more movies, basically. Anyway, we can pick all this up with Amanda. Yeah, no, I know, I know. I was just sort of... Has he ever come on the show before? Um, he has inserted us both as jokes. Which one? Were you, which, which joke were you? We were apparently we we're going to... Oh, well, we're going to play this when Amanda's in. OK. He made a joke about you and your hat. Yes, that I know. And a joke about me being nice. Oh, really? Yeah. Fine. You get the joke about being nice and I get the joke about the hands. I feel in, slightly disappointed. But. I think, in fact, that the, the the whole I've got big hands joke started with... Uh, the of it. Of it. Yeah, I think that's actually where it began. I don't think anybody had mentioned it before that. Well, you do flap them. No, I know, but I, don't, I think that that all came from after that's that thing in the, you know, God, your hands are massive right. line in thick of it, so... Anyway, he's, he has been on the show, uh, just checked with my research team, and he was on the show four years ago uh, with what? James King and Al Murray. For? For a film. Al for Papa. Which he had out. Yeah. Uh, but it didn't fall to us. But this time, it's live, and Amanda is going to be live. OK, but we weren't there because it was James King and... Al Murray. Al Murray. Just said. Yeah, I know, but whilst you said Al Murray, Robin said Alpha Papa in my head, is which is mean? why Robin just had to say Al Murray again, because he was talking when you said the right. thing before. This and is Robin's already... voice takes precedent over your voice. 
only technically speaking, not morally speaking. Well, in a very real and deafening sense, Robin's voice comes louder in my... Did you hear that? I heard a voice say Shirley Temple, Temple. in my head. Yeah, exactly. I don't know what she's got to do with it. <laughs> anyway. So, look, I think before this gets too surreal, we should probably now pause. OK. Uh, find the Five Live Drinks trolley, mm-hmm. have an emergency double vodka <laughs> and a packet of nuts. It would be great and then we'll if, in ready. the event of turbulence, rather than oxygen masks dropping down, little vodka shorts drop down. <laughs> That'd be quite good. You mean vodka <laughs> shots? Or shorts. Is it a short? I'm not sure. I don't know. I mean, I've I don't drink vodka. But no, but I, well, I, who does shots? I mean, teenagers, right? I think everybody does shots. No. Look, if the plane is in trouble, I think I would. Have you... I'm, OK, seriously, have yes. you ever done that, done shots? No. No. Well, exactly. Because why on earth would you? Well, because you get what to... on earth would the point of that be? Yeah, I would rather enjoy something over a longer period of time. Yes, rather than, you know, very quickly swallow something on the basis that it's probably horrible. Yeah, that's G's linked us, so I don't need to <laughs> so, so do that. Anyway... G's linked us does sound like a... G's linked us... That's actually, it is quite good. That's actually it's quite good. good, acceptable swear word. Yeah, it is. Cheese linked us. No one that, that, <laughs> thought of that. This is very good. Anyway, uh, let's move on with the show, I think. Open the curtains. Yes. Anyway, Mike, how nice to see you. How looking, nice to see you too. Looking completely fabulous. Not only have you been watching movies all week, you've been watching movies this morning. This morning, yes. I went to see Geostorm at The View Islington. And why hadn't you seen it earlier? Because it wasn't offered. And what, what does that normally mean? It normally means it's so terrific they want the public to judge it first. Or really? They're afraid <laughs> of what the critics are going to say. They're, they're not entirely sure that it's going to go down a story. It's not one for the critics. It's an audience. It's one for the fans. Is, is that It's right? one for the fans. You've yes. heard that all before. I have heard that. Are you going to review that later? I shall certainly be reviewing it later. Excellent. You didn't get up early to go and see it for not reviewing No, exactly. Not just... What else I might doing you it for my own amusement. Alongside Geostorm. Uh, Happy Death Day, which is this uh, hit horror movie, Secret Superstar, which is a... Well, I don't want to spoil the review, but... Loved it. Um, uh, Geostorm were definitely doing, uh, and of course, the death of Stalin because our special guest. Well, because is, it's out. Well, because um, it's out. Yes, I would do it anyway. And Amanda Inucci will be uh, here, and a treat for the webcam viewers. Normally, they just have to look at us, but he'll be live just after the news at two thirty. And yeah. he wrote it and he directed it, so it's very much uh, his film. Uh, got lots of questions for him already. First of all, though, Mark, your advice, please. Okay. Your advice for Tom Edwards and Harry Knight, who are aged 11, and they say we're writing... They're both for, ages 11. Yeah, they are. Both uh, we're writing for some advice about our new non-competing radio review show. OK. Next week, our new school radio station starts broadcasting live to our school, Nailsea School, in North Somerset. So they have its own, its, its own radio station? Mm-hmm. Wow. Harry and I are the station's new film reviewers, and as my mum is an LTL, a uh, long-term listener, mm-hmm. I have heard you both many times as she listens every week. What advice would you give us about broadcasting live? We hope to get a lunch pass so that we can eat before we start broadcasting, But any, t- which is obviously very important, but any tips about how we can present ourselves rather well would be particularly gratefully received. I don't think we have any cough or sneeze silence buttons. Our plan is to kick off with a discussion about the new Star Wars The Last Jedi film trailer and talk about what we hope the film will contain, awesome lightsaber fights, and what we hope they'll skip, which is the Gungans. If you could give a shout-out to our teacher, Mr Pearson, who has set up Nail C School Live Radio, that would be really cool. So here's Tom and Harry, aged 11. They're broadcasting live yeah. to, uh, to the school. They're doing film reviews. 
What are the tips apart from eating lunch before they start? Well, firstly, I'm not sure about the eating lunch beforehand because, you know, the amount of times you have you have uh, brought me up on... Your gastric Exactly. Reaction. So I'm not entirely sure. That's, that's something which only... Well, I suppose that, yes, I mean, I do agree with that. It's better to broadcast on an empty stomach i think or you know feeling slightly hungry yes and then but then maybe you'd have to have your lunch after the program and maybe yeah. that won't work in the school curriculum um as far as the actual broadcasting is concerned i mean the only thing is you know just don't review anything you haven't seen and then just just discuss it uh, you know exactly as we do um without recourse to uh crudity to, to, to crudity sweary outbursts plot spoilers attempt as much as possible to avoid plot spoilers, although that's not always possible. In fact, weirdly enough, the director of the new Star Wars movie, I think I'm right in saying this, has already said that he's slightly uneasy about how much is in that trailer, which I haven't seen yet, but I have been told by people who have seen it Mm -hmm. that there is quite a lot in it, including reveals that may have been better revealed by the film. But if it's in the trailer, then we can definitely talk about it. If they talk about it on Nail C School Live, then we can talk about it as well. So that's the that's the system you're now going to use. Is it, if, if it's, it's on, on Nails' Nails school live, it's 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 public domain. NSL as we uh, as it's going okay. To well, in that case, uh, you know, you're let's you you are carrying a let's heavy. Do let's do them an ident now. Okay? okay, fine. So, hello, I'm Simon Mayo and I'm Mark Kermode, and you're listening to Nailsy's School Live. It's the best movie show on the radio, nearly. There you go. That's there we go. How about that? That's pretty good. Anyway, yeah, uh, so don't make stuff up. You Make notes about what you're going to say. Don't just completely <laughs> freewheel for two hours. <laughs> that would be preposterous. Um, and how about maybe they could do a little survey of their of, of the school uh, on what the school's yeah. favourite film is. They could take listeners' emails or just yeah. listeners' mails because if they're in the, in the thing, people could just hand notes. They could do a poll. I reckon if Mr Pearson is up to uh, scratch, which he obviously is, he could arrange like a little school poll, maybe just of, the, yeah. of that particular year. What's your favourite film of the year? Get somebody from the BBFC to come on and talk because that is always interesting. And the BBFC have got a very big education remit, and they are always uh, happy to oblige. And we'll have a word with Armando, and if you know if he's available yeah. to pop down yeah. to uh, and Robin's always Somerset. free. Robin, you can go and oversee a couple of the shows, can't you? Is that Robin? Yeah, Robin said yes. Editor. Robin, Robin editor said he can do that. Callum O'Grady, whilst watching the brilliantly visceral Detroit. I noticed in front of me and down to my right the unmistakable glow of a mobile phone. I tried my best to focus on the screen and the amazing performances helped me to do so. For a little while at least. Minutes later the glow reappeared again. While staring and scowling at the culprit, because that's the most British thing to do, I noticed that this wasn't just a case of mid-film texting or message checking. This person was taking pictures of themselves. What? Taking selfies in the film? During a film. That is more selfish than a selfie, says Callum. Yeah, he thinks wow. I'm quite pleased with. Anyway, sometime later, I noticed it again and thought, why would anyone take pictures of themselves in the dark? It was then that I realised that this person was actually using Snapchat in the cinema during one of the most intense movie experiences in recent memory. It occurred to me that when delivering your Snapchat advice, how do you do Snapchat, you just do Snapchat, Snapchat. maybe an addendum needs to be, unless you're in the cinema, loser. I'm sure this would go without saying to most people, but what clearly a bizarre not. bizarre thing. And, in, you know, you might imagine it's OK in My Little Pony, but you would, but maybe not if you're in Detroit. I have to tell you that I once sat in a screening and a film critic who was allegedly using a laptop to take notes was on Facebook. Stern words. 
were had. Well, in, was it sort of intercritic argument? It was. That was exactly what it was. Did and did you say, excuse me, what what are you what on earth? What do you think you're doing? And I said it in exactly that tone. Yeah. And what did what did critic other critics say? Um, there was a there was a brief hiatus. Nigel Floyd was involved. We shouldn't we shouldn't go. Th- Why not? It wasn't Nigel. Nigel decided to to join. Anyway, it, it was the the problem. Shall we say was solved? Did it turn violent? No. Sure. Yes. Okay. Words were said. Yes. Words were words were had. Uh, it's thirty minutes past two. The box office top ten this week looks like this. It's the party at number ten, which I really liked. This is the uh, Sally Potter film. Um, it's seventy-one minutes. It's got a terrific ensemble cast led by uh, Kristen Scott Thomas, uh, Killian Murphy, who uh, we're a big fan of here. Tim Spall, and it's a story of a party. Um, in a sort of upmarket London townhouse. Uh, during the course of the evening, terrible secrets are revealed. Kristen Scott Thomas has just been elevated to the position of shadow health minister. And um, everyone descends on the party. Everyone, you know, finds out secrets about each other. It was a very funny review um, that Pete Bradshaw wrote in The Guardian, in which he said, it'd be really interesting to see if you could make a play about a party in which secrets weren't revealed about people in which everything didn't kind of descend into chaos. But I thought it was really good fun. I mean, it's, it's a laugh-out-loud comedy, and it's really... It's like a sort of short, sharp shock, 71 minutes in and out. It's terrific. Uh, Bodhi Sarka in Aberdeen. Yeah. I admit that I possess a moderate measure of political apathy. The same cannot be said about certain members of my family, ranging from devoted Scottish nationalists to advocates of Thatcherite conservatism, yeah. which results in somewhat confrontational birthday and Christmas dinners. However, such feuds are infinitesimal in comparison with the events of the party. Uh, it does not pretend to be daring or provoking, but offers a perceptive outlook on a company of misfits in a style that is lively and intelligent. I agree with the decision to shoot in black and white, which complements the underlying message of exhibiting a facade to advance a personal agenda. In some ways, the party draws parallels with Kevin Smith's clerks, and I would not be surprised if it too is eventually recognised as an underrated gem. Uh, Sheila Bushell uh, in York went to see the party this afternoon as A, it sounded interesting, B, it had a great cast, and C... I was ready for this week's cinema trip. What a wonderful uh, afternoon's entertainment. The black and white filming gave it much more atmosphere than if it had been in colour. It passed the 6 or 10 or 25 laugh test, whatever it is. And the acting was so good I couldn't single anyone out as exceptional. They all were. Well, maybe Killian Murphy and Timothy Spall. But the others were totes amazing. It reminded me of a play for today of yesteryear with a running time to match. So much was packed into the 71 minutes. Uh, Steve in London... It is, I should say, however, Steve in London, it is the sort of self-indulgent nonsense, the party, for the arty classes that can only be pulled off once annually by Woody Allen. Oh no, they've burnt the volivants, how metaphorical. How can 71 minutes be so annoying and boring and make me loathe the structure of society so much? I don't know, Steve. Not in the satirical sense the filmmaker wants, but because this rubbish gets four-star reviews by intellectuals who proclaim their own class is being skewered by deliciously acerbic scorching wit, etc., blah, blah. In the screening, some people chortled a bit, ironically, mainly at the violent moments, but every single person moaned at the naff thing, thing uh, which happened then. Just absolutely terrible. The worst film I've seen of uh, this year, and I've seen the Emoji movie, although my daughter loved it. I'd give it half a star for Killian, another half for Spall. I mean, I've encountered this reaction from uh, some other people who've uh, seen it as well. And um, what can I say? You're 
completely wrong. There you go. Loving Vincent at number nine, which is completely right. I mean, this is such an extraordinary work. Described as the first oil-painted animated feature, it takes place in the, about a year after Vincent van Gogh's death in which um, a letter is to be delivered to his brother, Theo. And uh, Roland, who's delivering the letter, um, sort of basically goes back to the, the last place that, that Van Gogh lived and speaks to everyone who knew him and spoke to him, sort of trying to understand how, how he met the end that he did. And the film is like this kind of really dreamy animation. They shot it first as a live-action film, you know, live-action cast. Um, that's why we heard from Saoirse Ronan uh, last week. And then each frame has been hand-painted. I mean, it's the, the level of dedication to the project is quite remarkable you know a team of i think it's like 134 painters doing this thing and the, the only the best way of describing it is it, if you think of something like waking life but done as a moving oil painting i thought it was just breathtaking i'm really glad to see it's in the top 10 it's it's really remarkable james kirkpatrick on the emails here i went along to see loving vincent on a wet monday afternoon at the fabulous gft cinema I wasn't sure what to expect. I adored the film from the well-thought-out Rashomon-style narrative framework. Can you just explain what that means? So Rashomon is um, a film in which you hear different versions of the same story told by lots of different people from different angles. From that to the wonderful cast, Sasha Ronan can do no wrong in my eyes, says James. The film already had plenty going for it. However, the real star of the show was, of course, the animation. Beautifully and intricately painted, the audience was left in awe as Van Gogh's paintings came to life before our eyes. This added brilliantly to the tragedy of Vincent's death. I don't think that's a spoiler particularly. As we <laughs> no, he's dead at the beginning. All right. As we were constantly reminded of just how unique and beautiful his painting style truly was. While I'd agree with Mark that the dialogue was a little on the nose at times, it didn't affect my enjoyment of the film whatsoever. Very glad I made the trip to the cinema. Won't be the same on the telly. Uh, Connie sides. I took my two-month-old son, Frank, to a mother and baby screening of Loving Vincent on Wednesday. It was his first trip to the cinema. He slept through the entire thing, but I thoroughly enjoyed it. The beauty of the animation is astonishing, all the more so from knowing each frame has been painstakingly painted by hand. Which it, which it has. It's I astonishing. Felt a, I felt a spark of recognition each time a scene or character from one of Van Gogh's paintings appeared, which could have been clumsy, but the references to his work were seamlessly blended into the narrative. The structure of the story was very engaging. I found myself discovering new information about Van Gogh's life uh, and death. Just one more. Tim Gowan. I love Loving Vincent. What a visually spectacular piece of work. This is from our Facebook page. The story made a parallel with contemporary views on mental health and people's attitude. Nobody knew that Van Gogh was going to become so celebrated, but there were those who saw his value as a man and those who didn't. A simple story which was so lavishly beautiful, I cannot wait to get hold of the Blu-ray. Sounds like it's one of those yeah. films that it is worth investing the extra few pounds. It, no, it really, yeah, it really is, and I guarantee it's one of those things that when you've seen it, you'll want to go back and see it again because it it is a, it's a it, yes, I said some of the dialogue is a little bit on the nose, but the vis, the visuals are just so strange. So just, we've got it at number eight, which I really liked. Um, I know that you're you know you 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 are particularly fond of the TV movie adaptation, the the two part thing. Yeah, but I like you know, I enjoyed. But I the, I enjoyed the film. Yeah, but I thought it was, I thought it was, and I think he is really, really good as the clown. Because I think he does a really good job. Uh, the rituals at number seven. I, I'm glad this is in there because I like the ritual. I went in thinking, you know, from the outside it looks like Blair Witch meets the Evil Dead and a bit of the Hills Have Eyes, and then you watch it and it is Blair Witch meets the Evil Dead and a bit of the Hills Have Eyes, and also a touch of uh, the kind of the bonding of early Edgar Wright movies, things like Shaun of the Dead. 
and it's a you know a group of guys go off on a camping holiday. They you know they go camping by mistake, and they take a shortcut through woods, and terrible things start to happen. And the the reason the film works is because you do believe in the dynamic, the group dynamic between them. I thought it was it was it was really rewarding because I'd gone in feeling slightly worried, thinking I you know this is kind of ground that we've trodden before. But I thought it was done stylishly and, and wittily, and I thought it was a, a, a really solid piece of homegrown horror. Dan in Nottingham, age 19, he says, I wouldn't generally pay to see this type of movie based on the trailers as they gave the impression of a typical Halloween time of year B-movie release. Uh, But I decided to give it a go with relatively low expectations, so I was more than happy to have those expectations completely flipped. This time, uh, this film was the type of horror film I actually hate, which means at times it chilled me to my core. For the first 65 to 70 minutes, the suspense created by the lighting, sound, unbearable close-ups of the four protagonists left me transfixed. In the last third or so, I did disengage a little as it went into a bit more of a we've-seen-this-all-before kind of horror film, but given my expectations were zero at the start, to come out as chilled and shaken as I was, especially with the pitch-black night and blowing trees from Stormophilia (laughs) following me on my way home, I definitely suggest this as a horror film uh, worth giving uh, a watch. And it's an Imaginarium production, isn't it? So Andy Serkis is the kind of producer behind it, the very, very busy Andy Serkis. And incidentally, we're off next week. Um, but I went to see uh, Breathe. Yes, which we, and we and Andy uh, and Claire Foy yes. and Andrew Garfield won last. Yes, week. I loved it. I just loved it. Come on, no, no, that's because what we're, I mean, it'll be reviewed it, next week. It'll be reviewed next week on the show, and then I'll I'll talk about when we're back the week after, and hopefully it'll be in the top ten. But I'm I, sure it will be. I just loved it. And it'll be reviewed next week. Probably. Yeah, and and you we, you wept a few times, I would imagine. I did. I, I I cannot remember the last time I have laughed and cried as much at the same film, and I was it was I was really taken by surprise. Well, in the, in the interview, Andrew Garfield said last week it's the first polio comedy because it's actually surprisingly it is it uplifting. is really yeah and, really uplifting and jolly and really funny and there are there the, the scene that you spoke about of them going into the 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 German hospital is 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 one of the scariest things I've one ever. of the most chilling scenes really absolutely seen. terrifying uh, Sanjeev is here next week all right Sanjeev and Clarice Lockery is doing the uh, doing the review so yeah. that is on look forward next to what week's program uh, so the ritual is at seven the mountain between us is at six it's alive actually. Uh, Botox at five? Yeah, so this... Now, this wasn't press-screened. and it's spelled B-O-T-O-K-S. Yeah, Polish film, drama set in a hospital, about which I hear very interesting things. I'm going to see that on Tuesday. OK. Kingsman, The Golden Circle, is at number four. Didn't like it, and I wanted to like it because I, you know, I think there were problems with the first one, and what I hoped was that the second one would you know, park those problems and do something. But in fact, what it did was it just went absolutely headfirst into all the areas that I had problems with. The the worst thing about it was, and it's funny because I, I talked to Jack Howard about this. And um, Who's he, Jack Howard? He's, um, you know, a, a broadcaster and film fan and all the rest of it. He used to do a show on Radio 1. And uh, and we agreed that the, the the word for it is naff. It's naff. And I never thought I'd say that about, you know, a, a, a Matthew Vaughan, Jane Goldman film. Uh, the Snowman, is it number three? <sighs> So there's been a lot of interest. You know, I was talking last week and saying it looked like it got lost in the edit. Mm-hmm. It looked like there was a lot. Of, well, it turns out not only was that right, but Thomas Alfredson has been basically 
touring with the movie, there was a headline, which was, Thomas Alfredson can't shut up about how bad the snowman is. That's not a good headline. Really. No, and he's he's sort of been saying to everyone, yeah, we did, we, you know, we just didn't have time. There was whole loads of things that we didn't shoot, and it was like a jigsaw puzzle, and we got back, and there was stuff that we hadn't been able to do. So what was interesting about it was that my instinct about what was about something that was going on with it did prove to be right, and also that the director himself has just said, yeah, you know, that that's what happened. We there was we we had to start really suddenly, and there were just literally whole sections of the story, particularly I think in that final that final segment in what we think of as a final reel, in which they they had clearly missed bits out. So that thing about going back, as I said, his hair changed. Well, it looks like his hair genuinely did change. But, well, I, I, but I do find it baffling how you can have a director with that. You know, with, with with that reputation, yeah, with a cast which is a pretty extraordinary cast and a source, a, a best-selling book, yep, by Yo Nesbo, yep. and and they stuffed it up. I mean, it's quite <laughs> quite an astonishing. I know. Well, thing. you should read it. Have a look at, uh, online. Have a look at Alfredson's own version of events. He said there were definitely there was things that they didn't that they didn't get in the initial shoot. Edward Kelly went to see Snowman last night, having recently read the book, was aware that reviews of the film were less than positive. Nevertheless, I went ahead as I was in the mood for a dumb thriller to kill a couple of hours. It was comfortably the second worst film I've seen (laughs) in cinema this year. The number one going to The New Kingsman, having consciously avoided the real stinkers, uh, Emoji, Blade Runner, Transformers and so on. I'm just reading it out, Mark. Yeah, yeah. I agree with Mark's comments about it feeling rushed and cobbled together, a really nothing film. Uh, Kate Lee, long-term listener from Madrid. Such a pity that this film wasn't any better. I felt that it suffered from being part of a series, so the backstory of Harry was missing. I thought it looked like part of a TV series. Great scenery, but a letdown overall. Oh, it, yeah, the scenery is terrific. Yeah. Um, Dr Matt Turner in Glasgow. I came to the snowman with high hopes, having been gripped by the book when it first came out, which was long enough ago to have forgotten the plot details. So I thought I'd be interested to hear if the big plot moves were as obvious to people with no prior knowledge. The director, Alfredson, made one of the best films of recent years, Let the Right One In, yes. and presumably it was his reputation that attracted such a fine cast to the project, with even Toby Jones and Val Kilmer appearing in fairly minor roles. And Toby Jones, or in this case, Snowby Jones. Very good. Thank Very you. Good. Kilmer, in a state of magnificent decrepitude, was the only bright spot in the so film. So much so that you didn't know he was in the film. You just like saw that. him in the credits. Unfortunately, the film felt like the killing light with elements of the girl with the dragon tattoo and other Scandi noir tacked on. Far too rushed, ultimately not satisfying. I see that the director has come out, as you've just been saying, in the last day or so to say that they didn't shoot all the scenes he needed. Apparently 10 to 15% of the script was unshot by the time they finished the first... It explains why it, was explains why it didn't make sense. Here's a jigsaw. Unfortunately, 10 to 15 pieces are missing. Never mind. Have a go. Yes. Here's a few million quid. (laughs) Uh, Anyway, uh, says Dr Matt, hello to Captain Lorca. We kind of done. Uh, And Colin Everson, um, I saw The Snowman last week at my local World of Cine in Dublin. It was easily one of the most boring, underwhelming, by-the-numbers movies I've seen this year. So much so that when I came to writing this email, I found I'd completely forgotten almost all of the issues I took with it. I distinctly remember leaving the cinema with a laundry list of gripes. <laughs> but the film was so utterly forgettable, I can't remember what they were. <laughs> anyway, I urge fellow witticators you know, that would, to avoid this film. I wish somebody would do that in court. Your Honour, I can't even remember the things that this client terrible. had done. They were so bad, but they just weren't interesting. Uh, Blade Runner 2049. I loved two. it. I mean, we can... What? Yeah, you loved it. No, I'm just aware of the time. Yeah, I loved it. Great. And you've seen it yet? No. OK, but you are going to see it over the, over the next week? I might do. OK. 
Thanks. Uh, number one is the Lego Ninjago Ninjago movie. Yes, it's Are funny. We Ninjago Ninjago. We're saying disappointment. Okay. Um, it's I've had I've had a lot of conversations with people about this. Um, it generally seems to be that with the you know with, with with the younger audience it's going down well because it's got you know it, it's because there is stuff in it that is you know funny and witty and smart, um, and it may well be that the, the the Lego movie and the Lego Batman movie just raised the bar so unexpectedly high that I went in expecting too much and then you know and then was was underwhelmed because it was just okay because it is okay there's no question about it it is okay there are things in it that i laughed at there are things in it that i was dazzled by it just didn't have that sort of you know that classic sense that the first two did it didn't hang together quite as well it didn't it didn't involve me in the same way. Partly, I didn't get as involved with the characters. I know it sounds like a really stupid thing to say about a Lego movie, but the fact, particularly with the first Lego film, is you really did invest in those characters. And Lego Batman, for months afterwards, I was quoting lines from it, which is really annoying. But you know, it's, mm. it's if you sorry, if you are our age and you grew up where if you watch Monty Python on the television. On a, in an evening, you'd go into school and everyone would recite it because we didn't have, you know, videotapes then. That was basically how you watched things again, was, the, was everybody swapped the lines in the playground. Well, I was doing that with Lego Movie and I was doing it with Lego Batman, but I, I cannot say the same of the Lego Ninjago Movie. Uh, Andy Bradshaw says, Our boys, nine and four, love watching the Ninjago Jargo... What do we... TV series, and so we went to Sutton Coalfield, Emp- Sutton Coalfield Empire. Cheap, twenty-four pound family ticket. Cheerful. The audience are always co-compliant on a Sunday with half the under ten population of North Burton. Well, that sounds very good. We like the film, but as Mark said, it's the worst of the three. I think the reasons are that it has neither the wit, heart, or humour of the Lego Movie, or the depth of thirty years of lore and material that Batman had to work with, and instead is based on a TV cartoon and some Lego sets. Therefore, it was always going to struggle. However, I did laugh a lot. So that's a very good. That's a very good point. At the Lee Lloyd running gag, the counting to three joke, and the flute music plus. So in conclusion, not a masterpiece, but in no way awful, and the boys yeah. both loved it. Yes. Uh, there's quite a lot of Ninjago stuff, which we'll get to okay. uh, later on in the programme, uh, but I don't want to keep Armando waiting, because yeah. he's a leading film director. Uh, spe- if, if he was just a moderate film director, you'd be happy to keep him oh, waiting yeah, yeah. whilst we talked about Lego. Which are on for ages. One of the big movies, which is, I mean, maybe the biggest movie which is out today, is The Death of Stalin. I'm delighted to say it's right in director... Uh, Armando Inucci is with us in the studio. Hello, Armando. How are you? I'm very good, thank you. Uh, the biggest, so, so bigger than My Little Pony. I think. Uh, let yeah, me just let, check that with Mark. Let, <laughs> let me just say this. I understood Death of Stalin. <laughs> there you go. Right, culturally, okay. culturally, you're right in there, yeah. uh, Little Pony. Okay. Um, l- less so. How are you? And it's been a long time since you've been around. So this project has been. Uh, what did we? We, sh- we shot this last summer. We shot this uh, pre Trump. And pre-Brexit yeah. and uh, pre-all the awfulness, really. Well, the events are 1953, so it, yeah. is, is that... Uh, are you are you thinking that this movie is speaking to our times, Amanda? Well, it was made in the spirit of, my God, this happened, and it's now released in the spirit of, God help us, please don't let this happen again, really. Um, uh, yeah. Well, which makes it sound quite... Uh, grim. Um, I bumped, not, uh, yes, I, I bumped into Jason Isaacs when he, either he yeah. was shooting or you just finished shooting. We all do yeah. that, and he yeah. said, "Yeah, all the time," because we all hang out together in like a really sort of famous celebrity street. Yeah, and um, and he said, "I said I've just been make, I'm making this movie." And I said, "What's it? Describe it for me." And he went, "Ah, <laughs> it is ve- it is hard, totally hard to describe because it yes. is on the one hand 
really funny and on the other hand really horrifying just for people mm. who haven't seen it do you want to just give us the basic well it's you know it's set around the time that the, the the events between the time stalin falls over and has a stroke uh his death and his funeral uh, and over those 10 days there is a power struggle going on in the kremlin as to who takes over and the power struggle is really between two people lavrenti beria played by magnificently by uh, simon russell bale who's who was stalin's chief Torturer, the guy who for 20 years had been drawing up the death lists, the people, the names on the lists of people who were taken off to the gulags and never seen again. Um, everyone is afraid he's going to succeed. And Steve Buscemi as uh, Nikita Khrushchev uh, thinks uh, he's got to be stopped. And it's it's about that. But fundamentally, it's about, you know, the comedy from it is the comedy of people being... <laughs> terrified of doing the wrong thing or saying the wrong thing of putting the you know everything had to be done unanimously in Stalin's Russia there is the famous story of when he gave a speech everyone stands up and applauds but the first person to stop clapping gets shot so the applause would go on for just hours you know technically it could go on forever under that law. So it's a little kind of whisper of what we're getting from North Korea is exactly yeah. the kind of material that you're you're filming with. It, it, the origin is in a graphic novel. Yeah, by Fabian Uri, a French graphic novel called The Death of Stalin. And um, I was approached by Quad, a uh, French production company who owned the film rights, who said to me, we want to make this into a movie. We'd like you to do it. I said, well, I'll, I read it and I said, absolutely. I'd been thinking about doing something about dictatorship anyway. I was thinking more of a fictional, maybe contemporary dictatorship. But there it all was laid out in, in in black and white historical events with this level of absurdity to it as well. I said, this is the story I want. But I said, I'm doing Veep. Uh, you know, I'll, uh, uh, I'm not ready to do it now. And they said, we'll wait. Wow. And um, I knew I was about to do my last season of Veep. So I said, OK, I'll see you in 18 months. And, and that was it. It was. It, it's not the, the most obvious subject for no. a comedy. No. And, you know, the... Challenge, I think, it was two things, really. Challenge was to make it funny, but at the same time for the comedy not to uh, undermine the seriousness of what was going on because uh, I knew going into it there were going to be scenes that were funny and there were going to be scenes that definitely weren't funny and it was up to me to make sure that those scenes were as memorable uh, mm. as the comic set pieces. But for me, the comedy was the way into it. I mean, the, the nerve... I mean, it opens with, again, with a true story, Paddy Considine playing the... Uh, He's fantastic. Playing uh, the head of Radio Moscow, concert going on live, Mozart being broadcast. They get a phone call. This is Stalin, enjoying the concert. I'd love a recording. I'll send someone around to pick it up. Paddy Considine puts the phone down, turns to the sound engineer and says, are we recording this? And they say, no, it's going out live. And he just panics because he doesn't want to be shot. He, he orders the doors to be closed, everyone to stay where they are, rounds the audience back in off the streets, which point the conductor faints out of sheer terror, knocks herself unconscious, and they have to scour the streets of Moscow for another conductor who comes in and does it in his pyjamas. And that's that's all true. Well, except in reality, the, the first conductor they got in was drunk, so they had to get actually a third conductor in. But I... I I took that out because yeah, it would be when, too when, silly. That's right. When, when the, the real thing is too absurd, <laughs> yeah, exactly. you had to rein it back in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We airbrushed one of the conductors out of history. Can, can you, you can you just do, do a word on the casting, Amanda? Because, yeah. uh, I mean, uniformly brilliant performances. So however you came to the decisions, you know, everyone yeah. is spot on. Just explain what you would, this ensemble cast, how you assembled them and did you, how did you choose and how did you well, come to these decisions? I started Laverne Beria, I wanted Simon Russell Bale for and, and you know, Simon's a fantastic stage actor, doesn't mm -hmm. do very much film and TV, usually does cameos. I liked the fact that 
you know, the audiences wouldn't really know him as a as a film actor in the same way that we don't really know who Lavrenti Beria is. And I wanted this, the heart of this film to be something unknown, but kind of mesmerising. Once you've got him, you think, OK, who's the exact opposite? So, so Steve Buscemi, Steve Buscemi, Simon Rossabill. You couldn't get two more unlike people together. I knew I didn't want people to do fake Russian accents. I wanted to just do their own because the Soviet Union was a massive empire with different, mm. you know, Stalin spoke Georgian, you know, all these accents and dialects flying around. So I thought, we're going to do it in English, but I want a, a mix of voices. And then, you know, once you've got those two, you then start working out, OK, who's the good number three, the guy in the middle who becomes number one briefly but can't handle it? Oh, well, Jeffrey Tambor, he's he's funny. And, and I can see him exactly do that role. I mean, he was famous ages ago for doing Hank on uh, Larry Sanders' show, the, you know, the chat show host psychic mm. who daren't be put uh, in, in the presenter's chair. Um, there's, a brilliant, and, there's a brilliant bit of casting with Michael Palin. And Michael Palin, there's a Molotov. Yes, and it, it, I mean, it's superb, not only because he plays it really well, but it also reminded me to a certain extent of some of the dilemma of his character in Brazil and that kind of yes. absurdity of the yes. character in Brazil in which, um, yeah. you know, an official calls his wife by the wrong name and then he insists on referring to his wife by the wrong name for the, <laughs> because it's in order to not annoy the yeah. official above him. Yeah, I'm so glad to see him back on screen, actually, Michael. He's a fantastic actor and, and yeah, and he plays Molotov who is so wedded to the party line at all times that when the party line changes every half hour, he has to change what he sincerely believes in practically every half hour and that's such a kind of, you know, Michael does that brilliantly. Um, and then Paul Whitehouse, who I've always really regarded as a great actor, but has always done his own stuff. So I, I just asked him to, to be in the film because I want to see him in a movie. And our own and our very own Jason Isaacs. Yes, yes. Uh, I, <laughs> who kind of has his own entrance he, halfway through the film. He does. And he plays Zukov, who was... Zukov, head of the Soviet army. Great war hero. So who, who, who felt he could just tell Stalin what to do. Uh, the only one, really. Uh, and, um, and Jason plays Zukov with a Yorkshire accent. Yes. Which he's described himself as sounding a little bit Brian Glover in Kez. Yes, a little bit. The, I, a, a, a smattering of Sean Bean as well. Though, it's, I yeah, I mean, I th- I, it's a fant- I mean, it is a fantastic entrance because when he comes in, because every, everybody is terrified of saying the wrong thing yeah, except, except for him. <laughs> he just genuinely doesn't care. Let's play a clip. Let's play a clip just to illustrate some of the points that we're making here. Uh, certainly the accents uh, point rather nicely. So we've got Steve Buscemi as Nikita Khrushchev and Jason as, uh, is it Georgi Zukov or Georgi Zukov? Uh, we had long debates about that, and I left it up to them to decide. Oh, Zukov. 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 Uh, we've replaced all the swearing, and there's lots of it, with, <laughs> with bird songs, so there's as much bird song as there is acting. Like, anyway, I was the one who put the trains back on, I know. Comrade. I'll punch into a sticky pulp. Uh, thank you. What were you thinking? Oh, I don't know, OK, but I did it. And I... I really need your help. To do what? The body's piling up in the streets a bit late, isn't it? What if we blame this on someone Wait. who's out of control? Nicky, be very careful what you say next. Who? Beria. I'm going to have to report this conversation. Threatening to do harm or obstruct any member of the Presidium in the process of looking at your <laughs> face. <laughs> Nikita Khrushchev, you like Kremlin dogs, eh? Stop. Be serious. Are you in? I'm in. I'm in. I think they can take on the Red Army. Germany. I think I can take a flesh lump in a waistcoat. No, it's got to be tomorrow. Tomorrow? Sorry, you're busy washing your hair or what? 
I'm going to have to go and see this film again. OK. It sounds a bit like Tweet of the Day there. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, That's absolutely. what it sounds like whenever he and I start discussing politics. Yeah, and, and if we're, if we're recording we're it, too. When, when Mark goes off on one, he's yeah. replaced by Birdsong, Birdsong. Which, is yeah, proof, great. which is actually proved quite popular. Yeah. Um, I wonder if... I mean, Mark's already touched on this, but if you watch the trailer... Yes. I wonder if people will get a slightly misleading impression that it's sort of fast and slapstick and great gags all the way through. But as Mark was suggesting, there is a dark heart to this there is, film, yes. which is, you know, uh, and it involves massacres and it involves paedophilia and it involves mm-hmm. torture. Mm-hmm. And I guess if you hadn't put those in, you'd be accused of of, of whitewashing, a, you know, a, a terrible... No, absolutely. I mean, it makes some trailer of all that that was in. But, I mean, I've been very, I've been very honest in, in conversations and, and interviews that it is... Uh, it, it is two things. It is a it, it is a it's a comedy and it is a tragedy and it, and they run simultaneously. And um, the first thing I said to the production team really right at the start of the process was, uh, you know, the comedy takes place in the Kremlin, but we have to be very respectful of the fact that millions of people were affected and we can't hide that and we mustn't run away from it and we need to be honest about it. We must let it overwhelm the film, but I, I and I want the audience to feel uh, by the end that kind of underlying tension and anxiety that I think most people must have felt on a daily basis having put up with 20 years of not knowing whether they were going to live through the night so there is there is that air of it and you know I'm I, I'm being if, if, if it's not clear I'm making it very clear now I mean it is I still think it's it's a it's a very funny film and I wanted to make a very funny film and we got some great comic performers in it but from the word go also I think is that and in, and and I we don't let it get out of sight you know there is this underlying uh, reality of what's going on really there is that there's a, there's a lovely line which Michael Palin I think it says I'm sorry I can't remember who's alive and I compared it before with that thing with Brazil which mm. again has that sense of comedy and terror at the same mm. time yeah. that there is this absolutely terrifying sense that at any time somebody could put a foot out of line and that yes. will be but it is that kind of heightens the absurdity but I started you know like all film critics when you're sitting in film in, in movies you know you, you write down lines that particularly mm. like you know what plane crash Soviet planes don't crash yeah. uh, and I found about 10 minutes in, I just gave up because it was like literally there was quotable line after quotable line. Stalin didn't like factionalism. He was liberal. He was radical. He was radical and popular. Yeah. It is a it is a beautifully written script. Oh, well, thank you very much. We put a lot of work into it. I mean, uh, a lot of people talk about the improvisation and so on. It, 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 in the end, the hard work goes in the preparation of, of nailing the story and then n- nailing nailing the dialogue and, um, and and also the casting you talked earlier about the casting seeming to fit I mean what we do is we get the cast in early and we work with each performer and each actor talk about their character they go away and research it so that informs the script so that the lines that they're given you know I can't imagine giving to anyone else playing that mm-hmm. part by the time we're on set because we've worked through and then we get all the cast together for two weeks in a rehearsal room away from the studio and just a you know a church hall Fifty pounds a day in tea and biscuits, and and, and oh the glamour, and, and <laughs> well yeah, but why why have all these conversations on set for an yeah, hour and yeah. a half when 150 people are being paid to kind of although shockingly you, apparently know? many movies are made exactly like that in which you don't have rehearsal time before you get to the cameras, and which seems astonishing. That just astounds me. And so on day one, somebody starts with a strange voice or a strange kind of walk <laughs> that there's no time to kind of do anything about because you know <laughs> this wasn't brought up, but it allows us all to work and on the big set piece the big comic set pieces with 
you know, and it's great seeing Paul Whitehouse and Steve Buscemi in a room with Michael yeah. Palin carrying a body around for half a day to see where the funny comes, you know, and it's that sort of thing. And, and, and there, is, there, is, there is so much comedy and it is absolutely laugh out loud funny and then you're laughing and then you suddenly feel extremely bad because of all the other material <coughs> that you're writing about. But you, yeah. you have written about power and incompetence mm-hmm. a lot, you know, over, over, mm-hmm. the, over the decades. Mm-hmm. And what, what a lot of the films, if they're making if there's a movie about Stalin or Hitler or they're looking at the subject yeah. of dictatorship is you get all the bad stuff you don't get the incompetence and there are points yeah. in this movie where you think everyone's an idiot everyone <laughs> that I'm looking at is truly useless <laughs> yeah I, I'd actually say it's competence you know it's a machine that just eats people up on a regular basis they had a quarter system for uh, the lists when they started, you know, so they had to get through all of Stalin's known enemies. That 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 took them the first week, but by the second week, they were just asking people if there was anyone they didn't like to put on the list. You know, it's a, it's a it's a machine getting out of control, um, I, and and that's what I want. And actually, Russian literature is full of this model of the little guy, the little person, chewed up by the by the big bureaucracy. Um, uh, and my favourite scene is the there's a scene right in the middle which is a very long committee meeting mm-hmm. uh, very static hands, scene. hands not quite going yeah, up yeah exactly because yeah. every decision has to be made unanimously it's just no one knows what the decision yeah. should be so there's a lot of and again it's back, it's back to Palin because there, cause in, there's a, a mm. long sequence in that scene in which Michael Palin is doing a, well Stalin would have wanted this but then this also would have been yeah. and people's hands are up down up yeah. down and that's a it's a great big sort of extended sequence it goes on for like two or three minutes yes. it's really funny because no one's quite sure what the punchline <laughs> is know. going to be I, know. I think it's the longest scene in the movie and it's and it, just the way it's been I noticed once we cut it down was it was exactly halfway in the film and it sort of summed up that kind of what do we do and, mm. and can someone tell me what to do because I'm scared. Will you get a Russian release? We've got a Russian distributor and the Russian press have said they liked it. They thanked us for not using Russian accents. Uh, uh, I know someone in the Communist Party there has said that it's a Western conspiracy to undermine Russia. Yeah, uh, fair uh, enough. Which, you know, yeah. I mean, yeah, I admit I took some money yeah. from the CIA. Of course. They gave me some notes. It yeah. was lovely. Yeah. A bit of comedy they put in. Uh, no, I mean, so, uh, but but Stalin is, he's in an ambiguous position in the Soviet Union, uh, sorry, in Russia now, because, you know, if you ask, especially young people, what, do you, what are you taught about Stalin? They say, some people say he killed millions. Other people say he industrialised the Soviet Union and won the war. You decide. And that's the sort yeah, of... he did both. <laughs> well, yeah, and, and there's that ambiguity there. But also there is the idea that Putin is projecting of the strong leader. Uh, so there's statues of Stalin. There's also statues of Tsar Nicholas II up in in Moscow. You know, it's, it doesn't matter which side of the political spectrum they are. And in the American culture, which you've yeah. been uh, steeped in for the last few years, yeah, who would have years. thought Russia has suddenly become uh, a real hot potato? How will that? How will views of Russia and what Russia's been doing? Uh, apparently, in the American election, yeah. play with this extraordinary story that you're bringing in. If- well, it's made Russia relevant, I suppose. If you want to be cynical about it, I suppose the rise of uh, a new form of dictatorship in, in Russia has been good for us. It's been good for the film in that it's sort of made it strangely relevant uh, in a way that I wasn't expecting. You know, there's lots of stuff in the movie about false narratives and old narratives and new narratives and and... People, when I was playing it to early screenings, people were saying, but that's all fake news and, and alternative mm. facts, isn't it? And it, it just kind of tells you 
that, that these things don't go away. You know, you think democracy is perfect and once you have it, it's permanent. But actually, it needs to be refreshed and renewed and, and recommitted to all the time. And if you, if you don't, you know, if you abstain, if you don't vote, if you don't participate, it falls apart and you get these uh, quasi-populist movements that are really about the, the one person, the strong one. You know, someone, Donald Trump in his uh, acceptance speech at the Republican convention said, I am the one man to solve this country's problem. The one man. And that's a dangerous situation to be when you are the only person who has the truth and everyone else, all your opponents are, well, Stalin called them enemies of the people. Trump calls them fake news and unpatriotic. But that's a that's a kind of worrying uh, pattern of behaviour to see on such a big stage. Yeah. Um, some uh, some listener correspondence to you, uh, mm-hmm. Amanda. Uh, Chris in Beijing. Oh, wow. Uh, who's obviously a fan oh, of... We're global. Oh, no. yeah, we're yeah, global. Yeah. Oh, yes. Fan of the thick of it. He wants to know who came up with this line from the show. God, Kermode, your hands are massive. <laughs> that's, that's Chris Addison. Uh, and it's haunted Mark ever since. I know, I'm big, sorry about hands. that. Oh, no, I'm, I'm happy sorry about that. that. And Nathan in Brighton points out that in the same episode, we get this. I'm actually really nervous about tonight. Why? Well, you know, last time I was on Five Live, I thought it was Simon Mayo. It was going to be a walkover and it was a nightmare. But you just got unlucky there. I mean, I suppose there has to be one person that Simon Mayo doesn't get on with. <laughs> that's Rebecca Front. Right. So <laughs> you're obviously just in a five-life frame of mind yeah. when you're doing that one. I'll get my coat. Um, uh, yeah, I think the first one, I think it was Tony Roach who came up with the the, the flappy hands. Well, line. please thank you, particularly now yeah. in the you know in a world in which having small hands is something which is... is exactly. Like one hand, you, I am can, you can flap your hands just with pride. Delighted, yes. Yeah. And, and you being the nicest man in showbiz, there has to be somebody that you yeah. dislike. That's, I think, that's, that's, that's a very warm compliment. Yeah. Steven Seagal is the answer. <laughs> yes, that is true, yes. is <laughs> oh, limey. Um, Amanda, as, a, um, uh, as a, uh, the director and the writer mm. of a big movie, I want to uh, just, I mean, are you nervous? I mean, you've got a, such an extraordinary track record. The advanced press is amazing. Some people have called it the film of the year. You know, the, all the reviews are great. I thought it's fantastic. Mark thinks it's fantastic. Are you no? Do you get nervous? What, what do you I think on the day of release? Is it day like, of release. I mean, it's so different from like doing a TV show where you know you you know what it is you're making. You know how many episodes, how long they're to be, and when they're going out, and 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 that's it. With a film, it's, there's so much uncertainty from start to finish. Is it going to get made? Are you going to get the financing? Who's in it? When's it? Be- um, there is a kind of nervousness about the opening weekend in a way that you don't have with television because you're aware, you know, some other people have given you a lot of their money to make something that you're then asking a lot of people to pay money to go and see. And you sort of want that to be a happy experience for for everyone. So, mm. so you know, and, and I remember when In The Loop came out, just actually worrying about the weather, checking the weather reports. <laughs> yeah, which, which has a big, effect, you know, on, a big not, effect on box office. Not that there's anything you can do about no. it. I you remember know. Danny Boyle famously saying that his brilliant and very underrated uh, science fiction movie, Sunshine, oh, great film. killed Stone Dead by the sunshine. Yeah. It was the sunniest week, yeah. weekend yeah, yeah, that, you yeah. know, that we'd fantastic, seen in ages. Fantastic film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, there is that nervousness so i'll i'll actually be happy come monday if we've had a good weekend well it's misly out there now so you're doing fine you know (laughs) Uh, tom hanks was on the bbc uh yesterday and today armando just he's i mean he's got a book out but he was being asked about harvey weinstein yes Uh, and he said it will be a watershed it was very clear very oh i hope so yeah he said this is a watershed moment and what is it mark he said that Weinstein will be a noun and a a noun and a verb something will become come to define a before and Mm. after i mean Mm. he was very Mm. very very clear about it and what's your take on my take also is that actually, you know, 
fine that Harvey Weinstein, uh, uh, this is happening to him, but, you know, the fact that he could threaten actresses with the end of their careers kind of implies that he had the means to do it, which kind of implies there are other people involved in this or or, or who let it happen. So I think, uh, I, I, I mean, I don't know, but I, I'm assuming there's much more to come out because it can't just be him. If There must have been a culture of that form of threat uh, and abuse and a culture of silence and maintaining silence within Hollywood. Mm. Um, after the death of Stalin, are you tempted to go back slightly smaller, go back to television? Are there scripts no, I'm that you I want to do a, next year, I want to make a film of uh, David Copperfield. The Magician? The, they're not The Magician, no. <laughs> Uh, nice, nicely played. Well yeah. <laughs> that would be a different movie. Uh, yeah, I just tee him up, and you just not. Yeah, uh, it would be an interesting film, actually, wouldn't it? No CGI. Um, no, uh, I'm a huge Dickens fan, and and I want to make a film version of David Copperfield, which is a a long and quite a kind of weird book in a way. And I I kind of want to start from the premise, assume that no adaptations of Dickens have been done before, so try not to. Uh, no, co- no cobbled streets and dames and oi, governor kind of street urchins and start fresh. You know, <laughs> is that even possible? Uh, well, we'll find out. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, and and any TV luring you back? Well, yeah, I'm going to. I'm doing another pilot for HBO. They said, you know, the next thing you do, you can do in the UK. And I said, well, actually, I want to do something in space. I'm a bit of a sci-fi nut, so I want to do say uh, doing a comedy set in 40 years' time in the era of space tourism. Wow. Wow, it sounds that you'll be rather busy for the next few years. Amanda, thank you very much, Steve, for coming in. And make sure, please come in and talk about uh, David Copperfield. Oh, yeah. Uh, once yes. he's done and sorted. In, in a street urchin accent. Exactly, yeah. e- exactly yeah. right. <laughs> Amanda Inucci uh, has left the building and uh, lots of correspondence on his movies, which we'll get to. And Mark, you, you've kind of said what you think. But yeah. Anyway, we'll. But I'll, I'll say more because we'll you know, formalise it. Never knowingly underspoken. David Carr, comrades, he says, all the glories <laughs> of the revolution to Amanda Inucci, a hero of the people who has created the black comedy to end all black comedies. It makes Dr. Strangelove look like Mary Poppins. So many scenes were memorable. The Chinese whispers of the presidium gathered round the body on display was superb, while the studied attempts to look elsewhere and ignore the drunken elephant in the room while Vasily wrestled a soldier for a gun was sublime. A majestic ensemble piece, but you must say a big hello to Marshal Jason Isaacs, who steals every scene that he's in. Just a shame there are only four others uh, with my wife at the 11am showing at the Cubby Broccoli Cinema at the (coughs) Bradford Media Museum. Stalin never let popular opinion sway him from his belief that he was right, and this is a hell of a film. Uh, Comrade George Walsh, um, on Wednesday, lucky enough to attend a preview screening and uh, had a Q&A with Armando afterwards. As a lifelong fan of Iannucci's work, uh, I excitedly anticipated this film and the event for quite a while. And it did not disappoint. A terrific ensemble cast sublimely captured the chaos, mayhem and absurdity left in the wake of Stalin's death. There is a perfect balance between the comedy and the seriousness of the story itself, with an undercurrent of anxiety running throughout the film. Simon Russell Beale was excellent as the scheming and terrifying barrier. Steve Buscemi is as brilliant as ever. And it was wonderful to see Jeffrey Tambor as Malenkov. Uh, channeling his inner Hank Kingsley. Jason Isaac steals the show in the film's final third with his sweary Yorkshire interpretation of Georgi Zukov, if that's the one we're going with. Well done. Overall, the death of Stalin surpassed every expectation. Everything works so beautifully, and I excitedly await whatever Amanda has in store for the future. In the meantime, I'll be sure to see this film uh, time and time again. 
Uh, Rob Mortimer, long-term listener, first-time emailer. I write in praise of Armando, having just seen The Wonderful Death of Stalin. Another triumph for a man who gave us the thick of it. The film doesn't so much as meet the sixth laugh test, but completely blows it out of the water. The cast are terrific all-seasoned actors, but with great pride I can tell my fellow Wittertainees that the man that steals the show is our very own Jason Isaacs. Uh, as always, with an Ianucci project, there are hidden truths beneath the comedy. Uh, and that is the underlying fear and paranoia of living in a Soviet state. This makes the comedy even more powerful. Given the woeful digest of rehashed TV series and superhero films, it was great to see a proper film with proper script and great uh, ensemble acting. A doubter is Andrew Godwin. What a curious film The Death of Stalin is, a historical comedy which is simultaneously too farcical to be taken as a genuine account of events, but too involved in the machinations of Soviet political wrangling to be funny. Not a single laugh in its hundred minutes, with Jason Isaac's film-stealing cameo coming along too late in the day to arrest the by then deeply embedded apathy, a crushing disappointment. It's fair to say, Andrew, that's the only one that we've had. Sure. People don't like it. People go and see it uh, this weekend. What do you add to what you've already told us? Just that I thought it was a really sort of brilliant depiction of that, you know, Maxim, but all power corrupts and absolute power corrupts, absolutely. On the one hand, it is, you know, it's a farce, it's a comedy. As I said, I was writing down uh, lines, they came up, look at him lying in a puddle of indignity. It's only comrades and old friends who can shout at each other like this and, you know, the unforgettable, I'm, I'm sorry, I can't remember who's alive. But what it also does is it has all of that, and we've we've talked a lot about the cast. A very good decision to you know have the cast speaking in that sort of cacophony of accents because you know it's all these sort of different personalities, all these different histories, which I think works very well, uh, very well with the ensemble. But underlying it all, that sense of absurdist fear, which is established at the very, very beginning in that scene which you referred to with Paddy Considine, um, you know, they're looking after the radio broadcast of this piece of music. Stalin rings up and says, great, I want a, I want a copy of it. And he realises that, that they're not recording it. And the panic, so yes, it's then farcical because they have to stop the orchestra leaving and, you know, get another conductor. But the panic, which is driven by the, the, the genuine fear of being taken away, of being tortured, of being executed because you've done something wrong. And I think that the, the point at which the film is at its strongest is when, I mean, Amanda was referring to that sequence in which there is a meeting of all these people and Michael Palin is doing this big speech about whether or not Stalin would have wanted change or whether, you know, allegiance to the party or allegiance to the old Stalin and everyone sitting around not figuring out whether to lift their hands or put their hands out. And it did definitely remind me of the tenor of, of the tone of Terry Gilliam's Brazil, that it's laughter and horror sitting side by side that the reason the things are, are, are funny is because there is genuine horror behind them. There are some scenes in it which are which are prop as they should be properly distressing. One which is a later on, which I, I won't sort of specifically talk about because obviously I think people will people will hear about stuff that they didn't know about at all. I mean, you're, this is a period that you started, oh, I, you know, I, and you I, yourself said that there was stuff in there that you didn't know about. Yes, there is a particular uh, scene, you know, which involves the deaths of hundreds and hundreds of people, which I had absolutely no idea about. And I think it's to his credit that he's he's got the laughs, he's got everything there and yeah. about the uselessness and incompetence of everybody yeah. without backing away at all from yeah. the true horror of what Stalin represented. Yeah, so it's, I think it's, you know, it's biting and scabrous and it, it I mean, it worked. It worked, I mean, I was really surprised by how well it worked. My one reservation would be that, as you sort of, you mentioned before, the trailer makes it look like an out-and-out -out comedy. It's a lot darker than that. 
it's, it's kind of hard to express in a trailer. Obviously, what you want in a trailer is to say, come along and see. I mean, it is a comedy. There's no question about it. But a lot of those laughs, again, I'll say this, like Terry Gilliam's Brazil, yeah. there is there is real horror behind the laughter. Yeah, so it isn't the thick of it in, in Russia. You know, it, it's it's so much no, darker. It's, no, it's, least, yeah. Because yeah. you know, in the thick of it, the only thing that you get is... You fired. Know, yeah, you get fired or humiliated. Yes. And clearly, as we've made very clear, there's a lot worse yeah, getting... Yeah, absolutely. ...coming, coming your way. Um Derek Mead, uh, just out of Death of Stalin, pretty damn fine film. Jason in excellent form, and he wears that scar very well. He Ensemble does, doesn't he? cast on top form, plenty of laughs, lots of winces, <coughs> and only just the wrong side of a believable documentary. Inucci has delivered a powerful, biting film. More, please. Derek, thank you. Mayo at bbc.co.uk. What else is out? OK, Geostorm is out. Okay. And I went to see Geostorm this morning because uh, I, I wasn't invited along to a, to a press screening for some reason. They didn't think that was... You paid money. Yeah, well, that's fine, but right. it's, it's more of the sort of 9.55 in the morning at The View in Islington, so directed by uh, Dean Devlin. Uh, and uh, so here's the story. The story is, in the future, right, uh, the weather has got really, really bad um, because of all the, all, all the global warming stuff. So uh, Shut Up Butwad has invented a kind of Skynet satellite network that can blow up storms from the sky and make the weather nice again by sort of zapping clouds, by dropping okay. things into them. And the project was called Dutch Boy, named after the Dutch boy who put his finger in the dam. Which, OK, yes. Yeah, although that's, I'm not entirely sure that that's what you call it. Anyway, so the project was funded by the US and China, who are in no way responsible for global warming, and incidentally are both very, very big movie markets. They say this at the beginning. You know, US and China set up this sort of Skynet thing, and um, it's all going very well. So Skynet's got nothing to do with... Uh, well, it's a, it, it, is, it, is, it is an international project, but it was definitely put up there by the US and China. Right, and we've nothing we, to do with Arnold Schwarzenegger. Oh, no, but it's not called Skynet. I'm just referring it to as Skynet because I'm give, trying to give you the plot. It's okay. called Dutch Boy. OK, fine. OK, I'll... we said this, but it's basically a great big network of satellite things in the sky that can see storms coming and drop things into them to stop the storms. And I got it. You know, for, you Obviously. Know, it's like real life. And uh, anyway, it's all going very well, but then strange weather events start happening. So a desert freezes over and another place catches fire and something's gone wrong with Dutch Boy. They need somebody to fix it. There's only one man who can figure out how to fix it, and that is Shut Up Butwad himself, who was the genius behind the project. The problem, problem is he's a bit of a, he's a, bit of a lone wolf. He's a bit of a live wire. He's a bit of a renegade. He's a bit of a, you know, slight, talks slightly out of the side of his mouth and looks askance at authority whilst wearing a leather jacket. And he figures that, in fact, bad things are afoot. Here's a clip. So you got my message? Yeah, I got your message. It's, uh, it's worse than we thought. Whoever's doing this is using Dutch Boy to target the cities. Yeah, they're disguising their moves as malfunctions. They already killed the man who found out about this, and I don't think they're done. Yeah, this is my life's work, Max. Now, they said it was impossible, but we pulled it off, and it worked perfectly without fail, day after day, year after year. So what do people do with it? Turn it into a gun. Yes, that's right. They've weaponized the weather. It's basically Dalek's Invasion Earth meets Moonraker, or it's White House Down rather than Olympus Has Fallen in space. Uh -huh. It's the kind of movie in which a Secret Service agent can say, you get the car, I'll get the president, and then can have a high-speed car chase driving backwards away from a massive fireball with a kidnapped president in the back seat whilst shooting at baddies. It is the kind of movie in which a global catastrophe, a geostorm, 
is conveniently probably going to happen only 90 minutes away and there is a clock to tell you how soon it is before the whole world catches fire. It is the kind of film in which having a British accent will get you punched in the face, but the fact that Gerard Butler talks like Sean Connery in that weird sequence from The Untouchables, nobody cares. It's the kind of film in which the only way to stop everything from blowing up is to try turning everything off and then turning it on again. It's the kind of film in which global reach is demonstrated by, oh, look, there's a shot of somebody in a turban. Oh, look, there's a shot of somebody in a camel. Oh, look, there's a shot of somebody in a bikini. Oh, dear, they've all caught fire or frozen or flooded or been vaporised in some other extreme weather event. It is the kind of film in which you fully expect to see a tornado full of sharks. In fact, they probably shot a tornado full of sharks and somehow it ended up on the cutting room floor. But the thing about it is this. The more I watched it... The, my brain w was reeling. I mean, my my brain like started cowering in a corner of my head and not speaking to me. And the more that happened, I could feel myself getting stupider. I could actually feel myself getting dumber as I watched the film. And the dumber I got, the more I started to enjoy it. And it kind of hit a critical mass. Th there was a point at which I thought, OK, this is fine. I am now stupid enough to be kind of almost on a par with the film. And then I started laughing. And then sometimes you get films that are so bad, they're just boring. I wasn't bored. I was, you know, my IQ went down hugely. And I'm, I don't feel I'm quite back up to normal yet. Um, but I started laughing along with it and enjoying the, you get the car, I'll get the president. And this, incidentally, is apparently a re-edited version. There was an earlier version, which, you know, according to reports in the press, wasn't particularly well received. Really? So they tinkered with it to turn it into this. I laughed out loud four or five times. I mean, it was, it's a, it takes stupid to a whole new level. I mean, it's like, I mean, I'm not, I'm not exaggerating. You can, you can, you can feel any sense of intelligence you have, like just sort of seeping out of your ears as your eyes roll backwards and you think, okay, th I'm assuming that this whole thing is one gargantuan joke. Um, and after a certain amount of time of just, I mean, every, every five minutes, entire areas just blow up or flood or catch fire for no, no apparent consequence, but it's just something that happens. And then it turns into gravity for a bit and <laughs> It goes into space. <laughs> it's right. in space. There's a lot of it's in space. It, I, honestly, it's the... I say this... I think it's the stupidest film I have ever seen. Wow. But I'd be lying if I said that I, there wasn't a certain... That after, after I'd been pummeled into submission by it... You gave in. ...for about 45 minutes, I just gave in. And I just let my jaw go slack. Is it more stupid than Angels and Demons? Oh, yes. Really? It's, it, it's more stupid than angels and demons. And that's not a phrase I thought I'd ever say out loud. And going to see it will <laughs> will sap your intelligence. So if at the end of it you were in an IQ test with yeah. the Secretary of State Tillerson, would you come out as a moron? Yeah, just absolute entry level. You know, I don't know, I've, well, I don't know how IQ tests work, but, you know, if they said, if they gave you a square peg and a round hole... Immediately after Geostorm, I would wonder why a tab A didn't go into slot. Because from the poster, you might think it's that they've done another version of the day after tomorrow, which I always quite. Like. The poster looks a bit like Inception, doesn't it? A little bit, a little bit of yeah. that as well. Inception, bit of a brain teaser. This, bit of a brain number. Okay, very good. <laughs> brain number and numberer. 
Numb. Uh, That's what it is. You've got there. It's numb and numera. You can thank you very much. Pass that on to the pitching. Well done, Simon. So that's Geostorm. Is it a 15 or a 12? I don't know. And honestly, I don't care. I think it's a 12. I'm pretty sure it sounds like a 12. It sounds like a 12. It's a there should be there should be a certificate with 12 is how old you'll feel after you've seen it. Even if you're six. Even if you're 50. All right, okay. Uh, so we've done the death of Stalin. Okay. We've done Geostorm. Happy Death Day. Happy Death Day. Happy Death Day, which is um, this sort of uh, satirical horror movie. Young college student wakes up in a in a boys' dorm with a mighty hangover. It's her birthday, as her phone tells her, and she thinks that things couldn't possibly get any worse. You know, she's woken up after a terrible night out, and uh, she's in this strange dorm. And uh, then she goes back to her place, sorority, I think they call them, where you know everybody's sort of being uh, sort of snark and she knows there's going to be there's, there's like a surprise party coming up and it's all very, very terrible. And it gets she thinks things couldn't possibly get any worse until, in an underpass, she's pursued by a guy with a baby face mask and a knife. And then she wakes up in the same dorm on the same day to the same sound of the same phone doing the, hey, it's your birthday. Yes, that's right, it's Groundhog Slay. Here's a clip. <laughs> Look, I know this isn't going to make any sense, but I have already lived through this day. Twice. No, 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 believe me, I know it sounds totally crazy, but this is happening to me, I swear to God. I'm sure it feels like you're like... Okay, okay, you made me a cupcake for my birthday, right? You're about to give it to me, and then later on tonight, there's a surprise party. Who told you? Was it back No, no, nobody told me, that's what I mean. Don't you see, I know what is going to happen before it happens. Jesus, Lori... In the, uh, the, the the reviews of the film, the film it costs not very much at all and opened very very strongly in America, and it's easy to see why because I think it is it's it's a, it's a real crowd pleaser. Um, in the reviews, people were saying it's Groundhog Day meets Scream, um, which I think it, that's not quite right. I mean, if you look back at movies like Happy Birthday to Me or even that episode of The Twilight Zone, I mean that idea about the, you know the, the the sort of satirical idea which is at the heart of this is one which you can trace back a, a, a long way. I mean, people were making self-reflexive uh, slasher movies long before Scream made sort of post-modernity hip. But I think the, the, in the case of this, it's well done. It's done with, you know, a, a, an amount of wit and uh, pizzazz. It's it's a kind of fun, slightly teasery um, popcorn slasher film that is aware of its own genre conventions and makes jokes about the films to which it's referring, but not in that kind of... Uh, utterly self-reflexive scream way, and I think I, I was I, I, when I went into it, I knew very little about it. Obviously, if you've seen the trailer and the setup, you'll know you know more than I did. But what I found was it took its idea. It's a simple idea. It's a you know it's a, it's a fairly familiar idea. There is there is a gag about how familiar the idea is. Incidentally, a Groundhog Day gag, but it does it well. It lets it play out well. It does it in a way which is kind of pleasing. Uh, it plays with genre conventions just the right amount. It's not scary, but what it is is it's kind of you know that thing when when you see a scary movie that you sort of that you laugh along with, not laugh at, but laugh along with. It's it's sort of fun. It's much more fun than I expected it to be, and I can understand exactly why it's done as well as it has. It's surprisingly entertaining and surprising. And is that why it's surprisingly not, sharp? And is that why it's not scary? No, no, no. I mean, it's. I think if you're if you're a teen audience that has, and there are moments in it. I mean, it's. For me, a scary horror movie is Dawn of the Dead. For me, a scary horror movie is, um, you know, uh, 
something like, well, I mean, The Exorcist, obviously, I don't know, it's that kind of sense of dread. This doesn't have that. This is much more in the sense of it being, you know, that kind of this is the, the teen slasher genre played played around with. But I thought it was played around with it, you know, rather fun. It's it's an entertaining popcorn popcorn movie. I thought it was fun. And is it a 15? I imagine it must be, yes. I'll check the certificate out. Thank you for asking me, but I've, I haven't bothered to look, but I will have a look in a moment. Geostorm is a 12A. It I is. Mean, you, you know, your guess was exactly right. Thank you. I suspect that, that uh, this is a 15, but it may be a 12. I'll tell you in a moment. It's um, 324. What else you got? So Secret Superstar, which is this Hindi film, um, uh, which is co-produced by and co-starring Amir Khan. Um, a young girl who co-starred with Khan in, in Dangal. She stars as uh, somebody who has big dreams um, about becoming a singing star. She wants to, she's got a guitar, she writes songs, she sees a talent show on television that she's desperate to be involved in. And, uh, you know, uh, that's what she wants to do. However, she lives with her mother and her younger brother and the father who is away at work a lot. And when he comes back, he's, you know, he's abusive, he's violent, he's somebody who is, you know, a, 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 a villainous character. And the whole family is completely under his thumb. At school, there's this kind of nerdy kid who's clearly in love with her, but she still feels lonely and she wants to sing. When she asks her dad for permission to take place in the talent show, he doesn't listen because he's too busy terrorising her mother. So she then buys a laptop and says, look, you know, maybe you could upload your songs to YouTube. But what she does in order to disguise herself is she wears a burqa, she performs as secret superstar, and she becomes a mysterious internet sensation. The next thing you know, she's being approached to take part in a, a great big uh, movie production. But obviously she can't do that because she's somebody who's not allowed to, you know, to, 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 to leave her home. She's somebody who's, who nobody knows who she is. So essentially, if you can imagine Hannah Montana but dealing with violent domestic abuse, arranged marriage, gender-selective pregnancy termination, divorce law, property law, wow. and doing all of it with songs which make you want to laugh and cry at the same time, and with a supporting performance by Amir which is really, really sort of scene-stealing and really, really funny, a terrific central performance by Zara Wasim as Insia, the young girl... It's been described, it said it's a film about the empowerment of the girl child, but unlike Dangal, which is a film I mentioned before, which was about daughters from the point of view of the father, this film goes one step further where the protagonist is a 14-year-old girl from a small town in India, and it's her voice that we're hearing, her point that we're seeing. I loved this film. I really, really enjoyed it. I thought it was really well played and really well balanced. I mean, what it did was, on the one hand, you have this kind of fantasy narrative about seeing a TV show in which you know you can be a star, you can you know you can be a star, you can become famous. On the other hand, it has these really, really down to earth subjects that it deals with. It doesn't shy away from them. It deals with proper issues. It is absolutely a girl power story. It is about the central relationship between a daughter and a mother, and it's quite clear that. That's what it's about. It has this kind of ridiculous figure of this superstar who is a judge on a TV show, who is you know, an outrageous and ridiculous and pompous caricature, who's very, very funny. It also has this sort of young, very, very uh, sort of tender, burgeoning romance, which is, I thought, beautifully observed in a kind of, what's the way you describe it? Maybe like a sort of Gregory's Girl sense of, you know, something that actually felt like, you know, like you could believe, you, you could believe in it, and songs which were sort of swept away. But and I, 
I really, it's, it's about, two, I think it's two, I saw it without an interval. There is an interval in it, but I, that when they played it at the press show, they played it without an interval. And I think it was two hours, 40 minutes, or two hours, 30 minutes, something like that. Uh, and the time just swept by. I really enjoyed it. I thought it was terrific. It was really well played and really, really likeable. And I was, I'm a big fan. Um, <clears throat> so that is called... That is called Secret Superstar. And do you think, and proper distribution? Do you oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm, I, I, I fully expect it to be in the top ten next uh, next week. Uh, so some correspondence which we missed out from earlier. More yes. on the death of Stalin, first of all. Giles Goff in Manchester. Um, Amanda was with us just before three. If you missed that, uh, you can check it out on the podcast. The central conceit of letting the actors use non-Russian accents helps to underscore the humour, and there's a rich vein of absurdist comedy running throughout. It's as if the director is trying to point out how ridiculous these situations and these people were if they weren't trying to kill you. I thoroughly enjoyed Jason's stellar turn as the Red Army General and quietly wished he'd brought the same broad Yorkshire accent to the part of a certain Starfleet captain. <laughs> Can you imagine? That would be fine. <coughs> However, it did mark a key divergence in taste between myself and my wife, Claire, who was not too keen. The constant casual references to bloody violence and sexual assault runs throughout the film, and if one were to take against it, I can see how it might sour your enjoyment of the rest of the film. So, do I mean, it's an interesting but Do you think that there'll be... We did highlight it, and Amanda was making this point very, very clear... Do you think that the nastiness, which is also at the heart of the film, might put some people off? I think if the nastiness wasn't there, the film wouldn't have the right to deal with the subject matter that it's dealing with. I think that if you're going to make a, you know, a, a, a sort of tragic comedy about that particular time, you can't do it without the nastiness. I think that would be, I think that would be a, a failing, and I think it's a strength of the film that that horror is behind it. And I think you think the same thing. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Because if it was just a farce, like it would, like they put on at the local theatre, there would legitimately be people saying, "Yeah, this." Do you know how many people died? Yeah, this is not this. This is not the right uh, subject matter for it. So yes, Um, uh, we didn't have time to do any Ninjago uh, correspondence because we wanted to get Armando on. Uh, Here's Dr. Martin Hakes. I have two boys. This is the number one movie, then. Okay. Yeah, and it will. I suppose it's likely to be there for next week because it's uh, it'll be half term for a lot of people. Yeah, I have two boys who have grown up watching the Ninjago TV series, uh, getting sets for Christmas, building the Lego, trying to play with the sets, rebuilding them, and so on. As Henry turned eight this week, it was an easy choice to take him and his older brother George to see Ninjago. Made even easier by the fact that they quickly dismissed the choice of 3D and opted for 2D, as the other Lego movies moved so quickly they thought 3D would be too hard to see. Yeah, I suppose they probably got a point. Okay, The cinema was clean, great seats, uh, great screens. Uh, The audience was impeccably behaved, following the code of conduct fully. Remarkable, given the age of most attendees. And the film was good. Not brilliant, but good. I could tell both boys were watching it, rather than being enthralled by it. And I found myself watching them, hoping that they'd be more thrilled. Admittedly, I did laugh out loud, probably too loudly, at some of the jokes about Lloyd's power being green. But the story and themes felt like a bit like it had been created by a committee. And why have so yeah, no, I, that, that I do understand absolutely. Uh, and why have so many filmmakers got father issues? Well, I was therefore <laughs> a little worried the boys hadn't had the amazing experience that I'd hoped for seeing their childhood heroes on the big screen. However, I'm pleased to say that the boys woke up my wife this morning by sneaking into our bedroom, both dressed as ninjas. So maybe the film has done enough. Okay. TV movie of the week. This is a handcrafted list of the best films over the next seven days on subscription-free television. Uh, it goes up subscription-free? Our... Yeah. 
Yes. That's what I said. Yeah, but you said subscription-free television. That sounds, it sounds like you subscribe. You have subscription-free television. On our Facebook page every Wednesday. Thanks. Karen Richardson says, I'm hoping Mark's going to pick the Iceman. Astonishing performance from Michael Shannon. What a, good, well, what a top guest he was. He was. Elizabeth... He was the person that, that, that Werner Herzog said that when he came in to audition for the Herzog film that he was in, the My Son, My Son, What Have Ye Done? I think that's the one. He said, he came in and he sat down and Vern Herzog said, and I felt quite scared of him. Vern Herzog's not scared of anything. Yes. He was scared of Michael Shannon. I recorded an interview uh, with him. I was pretty scared of him. <laughs> one of the reasons was he was barely audible. Oh, really? Yeah. Very intense. Brilliant. In, Very intense. Uh, William Freakin's bug. Elizabeth Matter says, it's got to be Apocalypse Dominic shortly. Uh, surely. Ben Graham, it's on an obscure channel. Check. It's on at a ridiculous hour. Check. It's directed by Danny Boyle, thus giving Mark the opportunity to sing his song. Sunshine, Danny Boyle. Check for these reasons. Mark is going to choose Sunshine. I'm going with Smokey and the Bandit, uh, Bandit in an effort to relive TV mo- movies of my childhood. Hannah Swithinbank, clearly Mark will go for Hodorowsky, but my vote is for Thor, the most surprising for being... Uh, surpri- a surprisingly good Marvel film. I went in thinking it was going to be silly, and it turned out to be utterly brilliant with great gender politics. And he also he did a limerick which ended with the "Well, where a thaddle, Philly." Ruth Ramsden, sunshine, because it's a beautiful, thrilling, poignant, frightening, and hopeful. Oh, Danny boy. Ian Miles, tricky to pin Mark down this week. The early Spielberg classic "Duel," "Life of Pi," or the nearly brilliant "Sunshine." Life of Pi, I think. I'm going to choose Lord of the Rings because along with Harry Potter films, I have not seen any of them. And by now, need to avoid the Dunce's Dungeon under the Church of Wittertainment. That's pretty extraordinary to miss all of them. Uh, anyway, what is our TV movie of the week? Well, it was mentioned, but only in passing. La Danza de la Realidad, uh, Dance of Reality, the Khodorovsky, which is indeed on at five to one in the morning on Monday on Film 4. And... I really, I really like this. I reviewed it when it came when it came out here, and uh, you did a lot of eye rolling and eyebrow raising. Yes, as I was I trying remember. to describe this uh, well, it's story. Because about... your explanation, I didn't understand it. No, you did. I was saying it was you know, is this this kind of magical realist revisiting of his childhood in 1930s Chile? And I talked about its carnival exuberance and its so yeah, and and there we go. There was the face yeah. that you pulled back then, and uh, I don't think you've seen it yet, Simon. So I correct. Think... An appointment to view at Incorrect. five to one in the morning on Monday on Film Four. Thanks, Andrew Khodorovsky's The Dance of Reality. Neil from Berry, podcaster, listening live for the first time since university some ten years ago, whilst Dad drives us up to Scotland. Alerted him to the fact that your bad selves would be on the radio for the journey. Hello, Dad. So I asked for some silence. To my surprise, he announces he knows this already because he's listened before and he can't stand the show. Oh. Hi, Dad. <laughs> All right, Dad. Well, as the passenger, I'm in charge of the radio, so Excellent. I'm going to be doing my best to change his mind. I'm not sure that a shout-out to Dave... Shall would, I do the, the dumb and dumber thing? ..would work to change his mind, but it couldn't hurt. Do you want to hear the most annoying sound in the world? <laughs> and now Dave has just turned to Neil and said... Turn it off. My Turn point. it off. Exactly. Steve Wright, thank you very much. <laughs> He doesn't. Steve Wright, it's just it's 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 all the hits at the moment, isn't it? Is it golden oldies? Matt Watson, uh, I'm an MLT, uh, a former wannabe film journalist, now trained turned trainee teacher. I write in today for two reasons. Yeah. Firstly, to thank you. I'm currently sat in the passenger seat, another passenger corresponding with us of the car, as myself and my better half embark on a 200 plus mile trip from Leicester to Torquay ahead of a big family gathering this weekend. 
I usually tune in via the podcast, but today I'm listening live. Today, my favourite pair of bickering movie lovers. This is going to change. What a treat. I'm going to be able to listen to your blissful tones live for a good chunk of the journey. Secondly, I wanted to ask a question about the code. Yes. A few weeks ago... <coughs> we, Excuse me. Arsenal. <laughs> me and the fiancé went to a screening of The Mountain Between Us, yes. and as we sat down, I realised that she was wearing a glow-in-the-dark Gilmore Girls-themed jumper. Pardon? Where does this stand in regards to... So, it's a, it's a, what? What? It's a glow-in-the-dark yes. Gilmore Girls-themed jumper. Right. Do I have to rethink this whole marriage lark, says Matt Watson. <laughs> so, first of all, Matt, probably not. Secondly, a glow-in-the-dark jumper is a, must be a thing of, of great beauty, I think. Although it would be distracting, is that like a, so? It's a luminous. It's, a, it's one of the ones that when when it's in the light, it takes in the thing, the phosphorus. Or yeah, whatever, that's right. Know. So it's a bit like having a very you know a very powerful watch, you know, which is glowing in the dark. Yeah, but it's so a jumper. Got a, got a jumper that's glowing in the dark. I think that's clearly breaking the code because how distracting is that going to be if the woman in front of you is positive? Do you think on that fire? she'd forgotten that it was glowing in the dark because she put it on in the light? That could well be the case, but I'm afraid ignorance is no defence in, in, in this case. No, I have to say, if I found myself in the cinema with somebody with a glow in the, with glow-in-the-dark clothing, I would consider that to be... My only hope was that it would it would fade, you know, that it would... It, but that's what it does, doesn't it? Because it yeah. takes... When you go out into the light, it sort of charges up, and then you go into the dark and it discharges. That's correct. Yeah, I would it? just think, put a coat on, or just cover, <laughs> cover up in some way. Always the best thing. <laughs> Uh, anyway, thank you very much for listening, and um, we'll have some reviews between now and four. Yes, I'm going to just switch the order because I want to do. I'm not a witch. I want to give this proper time. This is a feature debut from Rangana Nioni, who was born in Zambia, raised in Wales, has made several short films which have won international awards. This is a feature debut, an extraordinary piece of work. Story of a young girl in a remote village who, at the beginning, we see. Um, somebody carrying uh, a bucket of water who this young unnamed girl steps out in front of her, the bucket of water is dropped. Uh, immediately, the young girl is accused of being a witch um, and uh, the local authorities offer her a choice, which is you can either go and join a witch camp um, and you will then be attached to a huge string of white ribbon for the whole of your life in order to stop you flying away or cut the ribbon and be turned into a goat which may well be killed and eaten for supper. Unsurprisingly, she takes the former option and finds comfort for a while in the company of these outcast women who have been told to live in this witch camp. But then a government official says, ah, you're my little witch now, after he realises that he can use her as a celebrity, taking her around to local courts to solve disputes between... Uh, uh, disputed parties and the next thing is she's on talk shows she's being sort of paraded around as this sort of you know magical witch that this government official is basically you know using for his own devious ends and he's asked on the talk show yes but but what if she is just a child and the film is basically a very dark satire on on many things one of them is on the role of women in society i mean it has its feet in factual stories there really are genuinely witch camps uh, the writer director researched them both in zambia and then in ghana she went and stayed in witch camps in ghana but it's also more importantly has an element of fairy tale fantasy the central conceit the idea of people being attached by these long strands of white ribbon that are meant to sort of superstitiously and practically prevent flight definitely has hints of Charles Perrault or the Brothers Grimm. There is that kind of fairy tale sense all the way through. Some scenes, I mean, the, the, there's a scene very early on in which the, the child who is named Shula by the women in the witch camp um, 
they're seen very, very early on in which she is being accused of witchcraft, which has hints of Monty Python, in which somebody says, oh, yes, well, I was, I was, I was standing in a field and she suddenly materialised before me and I realised that she was holding an axe and then she cut off my arm and he's standing there completely intact. So there is definitely that kind of sense of, you know, the, the, from Monty Python um, uh, and the Holy Grail. There are also scenes which are absolutely heartbreaking and tragic and touched by a certain sense of, you know, um, strange poetic transcendence. I think what the film manages to do is to be, you know, we talked about the way in which uh, Amanda Iannucci's film juggles humour and horror, it juggles fact and fiction. And I think this film does a very similar thing, that it is a satire and it is meant to be something which, you know, there is definitely a very sort of strong streak of often quite cruel humour in it. But it's also very pointed, very... It's a socio-political satire, it's about gender politics, it's about the way in which, you know, people can uh, turn on each other, but also in the way in which people can find strange bonds. It has a very strong quasi-magical realist edge to it it's the photography is absolutely beautiful the cinematographer is the same guy who made Embrace of the Serpent which I which I absolutely loved and I think as uh, it's it absolutely establishes Rangana and Ioni as, as an extraordinary talent to watch. On the basis of this, I can't wait to see uh, what she makes next because this is a really remarkable piece of work. Very hard to define, harder to describe, but one of those things that when you watch it, it makes complete sense. It's totally coherent. I've seen it twice. Second time round, it seemed even richer. It is called I Am Not a Witch and it is Certificate 12A. That is out today. Also out today, My Little Pony. Now... I saw the My Little Pony movie. All the okay. way through? Mm-hmm. All the way through. And I can't... There's very few times that I have felt completely unable to understand or get a grip on a film. Because, uh, you know, I think once... I think maybe the Powerpuff Girls, I don't think I, I got... Handled. Anyway, so I, I watched My Little Pony and I felt whilst watching it like... There is there's there are stories of people who've never seen cinema being shown a moving image for the first time and being you know startled or surprised by it. There's a famous uh, story of when they showed the train arriving at let's see the train arriving at a station that people who'd never seen moving images before just rep- one of the first one of the very very first um, you know, not the first but one of the first uh, moving images to be publicly projected and there's a famous story about it being shown in Paris and uh, the patrons in the in the, it was actually a cafe they showed it in, were so astonished by the sight of this train coming towards the screen that they ran out of the cafe. And there's a lot of discussion about whether or not this is apocryphal and, you know, maybe it is, maybe it's a story that's been embellished over the years. Watching the My Little Pony movie, I felt like one of those people, there was a load of colour and there was some speaking and some noise and some songs and there were unicorns of different colours and there were, and I literally thought, I have got absolutely absolutely no idea what any of this means. So um, after watching the film all the way through, I went to look at a, at a plot synopsis, OK? And I read the plot synopsis of what I had just seen. Yeah. And I am even now m- I'm more confused. I'll give little highlights. The Ponies of Equestria are having a friendship festival, first friendship, which is overseen by Princess Twilight Sparkle in Canterlot. The festivities are interrupted by a storm creature commanded by the broken-horned unicorn Tempest Shadow who uses magical obsidian orbs to petrify Twilight's fellow princesses. There's then a bit about a whole load of cake. There's a joke about cake. There's a cake goes everywhere where it's not supposed to go. And then then 
there is some stuff with hippos and then there's some fly around stuff and then there's some colour and then there's some talking and then there's some more colour and I have absolutely no idea what any of it meant. I cannot judge it because I don't get it. Is it because you've become so stupid having... What... No, I saw it before. I oh, saw it okay. before Ge- You know, if I'd seen it after Geostorm, it might have been a different experience. But I sat there in a very, very nice screening room and I cannot tell you anything about My Little Pony except I felt like somebody from a previous age watching moving pictures on a wall and thinking, I don't know what this means anymore. Anymore. Uh, some listeners do, fortunately. Uh, Rob West, age 34 and a quarter, in Solihull. OK. Hello, Dr Fizzy Bomb Sweetledum and <laughs> Dr Fluffy McStuffy. And again, I'm lost. I took my five-year-old son and one-year-old daughter... Yes. ...to see a preview screening of MLP, My Little Pony, on... MLP. ...Saturday at the Odeon Broadway Plaza in Birmingham. I wish yes. to report that we didn't have an awful time. OK, good. For starters... I'm my, very pleased. And son... you notice that I didn't say it's a bad film because um, I... I am not qualified to pass comment. Carry on. For starters, my son was very impressed that we got a behind-the-scenes tour of the facility because the customer lift was broken, so we got taken into the staff area to use their lift for the pushchair. And then we had a free popcorn situation. So, as the youth say, get in, says Rob. And then the <laughs> film started. I'm pleased to state it wasn't... Do they say that? Yeah. OK. I'm pleased to state it wasn't entirely awful. My wife had joked beforehand about how I would be able to catch up on some well-deserved rest during the showing. And whilst I cannot state that this review will be full of plot spoilers, there were some extended periods of eye closure, I will say that it wasn't too bad. Generic, yes, but not too bad. The running time was definitely 30 minutes too long. I mean, why make a film designed for five-year-olds 105 minutes long? But it There There was a short film at the beginning of it, incidentally, which I didn't realise when it started was a short about things going down colour slides... And the colour yellow couldn't go down the colour slide. Oh, I mean, that's a shame. Yeah, and I, and that and then that ended, and then that wasn't My Little Pony. And then there were some credits, and then My Little Pony stuff. So what happened to yellow? It, there was a problem with yellow not wanting to slide. Oh, but then, but then I think yellow did. I so think that, that's yeah. what happened. Okay. Um, anyway, I held the attention of my five-year-old for the majority of the time and it was loud enough to cover the screams of my one-year-old whenever she felt I wasn't giving her enough snacks to eat. <laughs> what I will say is because of the loudness and constant loudness of the film, there was pretty much no need for anyone in the screen to be co-compliant. I couldn't hear my child shouting sometimes and she was on my lap. I'm not sure taking a one-year-old, if it's not one of the mother and baby screenings, is it, uh, makes a lot of sense, but anyway, uh, it's down to Rob. And John in Wilmslow, shout-out to the My Little Pony movie. In a time when strong female role models are thin on the ground, this yeah. seems to be ignored, despite okay. being full of them. And I, I'm, you know, I'm. It, is it? I don't know because I didn't understand any of it. I think you should see it again. No, I, I think what should happen is that you and I should go and see the Emoji Movie, which has now dropped out of the top ten. Oh, it might be quite difficult to find. Well, you know what we might have to do is wait for it to come out on DVD and sit and watch it together and eat pizza in a front room. Seven minutes to four o'clock. This is Five Live. What else you still got there? Mark? Okay, so let's do Marshall. Story of Thurgood Marshall, who um, argued cases such as Brown versus the Board of Education '67, became the first American, the uh, first African American Supreme Court justice, played by Chadwick Boseman, who I know you're a fan of, as, as am I. Film focuses on an early case from 1940. Marshall is working for the NAACP. He's called to defend a chauffeur, Joseph Spell, who's been accused of raping his uh, rich white employer, Eleanor Strubing, played by Kate Hudson. 
Um, she says that he kidnapped her and threw her from a bridge into a river. The NAACP think that the thing is a setup and that the case is worth fighting. Here's a clip. Mr. Spell, I'm Thurgood Marshall with the NAACP. You heard of us. You a lawyer? I am. This is Sam Friedman. He's a lawyer too. Hey, you can go. Got no money for lawyers. Anybody ask you for money? Did you rape that woman, Joseph? No. Why does she say you did? I don't know why she's saying that. She says you raped her and tried to kill her. She lied. I'm telling you this up front. The NAACP were not like most lawyers. We only represent innocent people, people accused because of their race. That's our mission. You understand? So I need to know this. Look at me now. Did you do what they said you did? I never touched that woman. Okay, Joseph. You got lawyers now. Obviously, there are narrative similarities between this and To Kill a Mockingbird. One of the things that's central about it is that the the, the character Thurgood Marshall is not played as somebody who's sort of saintly. He's somebody who's he's egotistical. He's willing to put his client's life on the line to pursue his own instincts about a case. He's he's sort of portrayed as being slightly vain, you know, very pleased with the way he looks and he looks great in this sharp suit. His devotion to his job takes him away from his wife at times when she absolutely needs him. He also uses people around him, most notably this local counsel, Sam Friedman, played by Josh Gad, who's a Jewish lawyer with no criminal experience, who really doesn't want to get involved in this fight, but has to because they have to have a local attorney. And as he says to Walsh, he says, it's all right for you. You come in here and you stir all this up and then you'll leave. And I'm the person who has to live with the aftermath of it. But the film makes um, an interesting play of comparing the situation of his relatives in Europe and what's happening to them and then what's happening back at home. And um, James Cromwell is the judge who apparently, in fact, it's true, wouldn't let um, Doug Marshall, it wouldn't let him speak. He'd let him into the court, but wouldn't let him speak, said he had to speak through, essentially, through, you know, through a second. Um, it's, the direction is sort of somewhat unremarkable, but there's an but the story itself is is well told with a you know with an attention to detail which sometimes strikes one as forensic. And the fact is that Chadwick Boseman is a very very strong uh, screen presence. I know that you liked him in the James Brown movie and Get On Up. He was. Which, I think you interviewed Mick Jagger for Mick that. Jagger am I right? The, yeah, because he was the producer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's you know he's a he's a very very strong uh, presence and he holds this uh, together very well. I'd like to also just flag up this film called Unrest which is uh, directed by Jennifer Breyer. And it's a story about... I mean, it's her story that essentially she's um, she's somebody who's a, a, a sort of very, very active student and then her body starts failing and uh, she is she basically uh, laid low by ME, which is, you know, commonly sometimes referred to as chronic fatigue syndrome and given many other names, many of which are sort of rather unkind... And what she then attempts to do is, you know, attempting to deal with this uh, this illness, which basically, you know, saps her energy, takes her energy away, and leaves her in this very, very difficult position. Is because of the way that the internet works, because it's possible to contact people with the internet around the world. She gets in touch with a load of other people who are suffering, you know, similarly, and asks them to tell their stories. Because what she's attempting to do is to lift the lid on this thing which is happening, which is often swept under the carpet. Here's a clip. Omar holding the back of the kayak, flailing all over the place to try to get in. Hopefully this is just a kayaking trip, not a metaphor. I mean, sure, we all know nothing lasts forever. 
I just thought I would have more time. And then one day I got a fever of 104.7 degrees. I got better, but something wasn't right. And what the film then proceeds to do is to document her condition and the condition of you know many other people who are suffering similarly. Um, uh, I have to say, I mean, I've had some uh, sort of first-hand contact with. I interviewed somebody in America for an anti-censorship doc who'd been um, bedridden for I think over ten years. Uh, by Emmy, I have um, at least two uh, two people that I know, one younger, one older than me, who have similarly uh, struggled uh, with it. And um, one of the things that the documentary does is it addresses the idea that some people don't believe in the illness, and uh, which is something which is a particularly cruel twist. What this does is it shows you stories of people who are you, you know have really been been laid low, who have suffered very terribly, and who are trying to find you know, uh, to understand what's happening, to get everybody else to understand what's happening, to approach what's happening to them and to have some kind of positive outlook about it. I found the documentary to be very honest, very moving. Even though I went into it, you know, already with a certain perspective on the subject matter, I think you could go into it with a sort of totally cynical perspective and be won over by it because these stories are... They're told in a way which is so close, which is so first-hand, which is so convincing. Also, there are some astonishing things about people being mistreated by the authorities which are really alarming and eye-opening. And the title Unrest refers not only to the condition but also to civil unrest, to rising up and getting your story told and it becoming a protest story. Movie of the week. Death of Stalin. This has been a Something Else production for BBC Radio 5 Live. Next week we're off, so Sanjeev Bhaskar will be here with film critic Clarice Lockery and special guest Jeff Goldblum. Thanks very much indeed for listening. Podcast available now. Now it's Drive. Yeah. What? (laughs) Sorry, what? Stop. What? Hello from the Lees family in a traffic jam somewhere near Watford. I don't think... I mean, this was from the live show, so they might not actually get to this bit. But they said none of us understood My Little Pony either, and there were two girls under the age of 10 in our family. Oh, fine. So it isn't liter- It isn't just me being completely... We definitely need more. I mean, hopefully next week we'll have some more uh, My Little Pony action, some more yes. MLP in, uh, reviews. The thing, the thing I do want to say is this... that. It, because it was one of those cases where I, I genuinely feel like I cannot pass judgment on it. I could do the sniffy critics thing about just being horrible about it, but why? Because it, it, it's really whether or not it works for, for yeah. a, the target audience, which I, I presume is, is very young. Well, it's we'll a youth certificate, out. very young. But, but that, that email said there were two, two under tens, under tens and they didn't understand they it. They didn't quite understand it. There was a... Sorry. No, I was just no, saying, no, if, if you see it, so if you see it over the next few days... Uh, with an appropriate audience. Yes, get let, it, us let us know. Let us know, genuinely. There was a guy, ages and ages ago... Is this a, an anecdote coming up here? You're, you're, you're settling yourself down into... I'll be really quick. There was a guy, years and years ago, we did um, some musical talent show. This is back in the 1980s. We? The Railtown Bottlers, as it was then. A skiffle band that I used to play in. Was and we met... in there? I'm just pointing it out. And we met this guy... Who said, um, and he he said he said the problem he said the problem with with modern pop music, nobody writes songs for the under tens anymore, and I thought he said nobody writes songs for the undertones anymore, and I couldn't understand. I thought, well, surely the undertones are writing songs. What he meant was nobody writes what he said, and nobody writes songs for the under tens anymore. And when you said 
the under 10s, what I heard was the under yeah, the undertones. As a result of that, there are probably four people in the world who would find that story funny. Okay, well, let's redo this. Oh, my uncle Arthur, he fills the world with laughter. That was one of his. Hello from the Lees family in a traffic jam somewhere near Watford. None of us understood My Little Pony either. And there are two girls from the undertones in our family. <laughs> you know, I saw the undertones play live recently, but not with Fergal. No, he doesn't do that. No, no, but the, it, the rest of them appeared to be the originals, but not Fergal. Uh, what does he do now? Is he an A&R man? He always, he's like a big cheese in the he's in a cheese industry. Yeah, he's become a cheese, an official. And what does he do? He's a London Derry cheese. London Derry cheese, <laughs> That's almost like, uh, sounds like a tune. Anyway, uh, Luke Doolin, greetings. My name is Luke. I am from Dublin and I am an MTL, FTW, etc. I am writing following Ant Green's correspondence last week in which Ant experienced the highly unlikely event of seeing a seafaring real-life Andy Circus whilst listening... A seafaring real Yeah, because they were on a ferry. OK, OK, I see, see. listening to the good man himself on your podcast. I, too, had a similar public transport-based what-are-the-odds experience a few weeks ago whilst listening to your podcast, this time on a train. There I was enjoying a pleasant journey accompanied by a latte, a red velvet donut. Wow, imagine that. And the wonderful Donald Gleeson and Margot Robbie on your show being interviewed by Simon. When, amongst the train's disembarkers at Malahide Station in North Dublin... This is full of detail. I see what I initially think is a striking doppelganger of the ubiquitous Mr Gleeson. Upon this figure getting closer, I realise that it is, in fact, the actual, Uriel Donald Gleeson. The fact that this unlikely audiovisual 3D Donald Gleeson experience occurred as I was listening to the part of the interview where Donald's current omnipresence was being discussed yeah. felt particularly fitting. Having seen Mother, which I loved, <laughs> earlier that week, I momentarily considered jumping off the train to catch him and attempt to engage in some heated thematic discussion, but decided against it, as he had alluded that since the movie's release, this had become something of an issue. I continued the journey in the hope that the stars may align twice and I might see Margot Robbie exiting at my stop. But unfortunately, this was not in the universe's plan. Her loss, though, I had saved her half the donut. Margot Robbie, about whom everyone says... What a lovely person. Yes, particularly Donald Gleeson. Yeah, but, but, but particularly everybody. Everybody seems to say that everybody. she's just a fabulous person. So that's very good. So that's another uh, particularly... Str- so bear in mind, if you've been listening to the podcast and you didn't see Armando Inucci next to you, you might have missed him because he probably was. And you should have gone up and tapped him on the shoulder. Yeah, and said, what? hello to Jason Isaacs. Did you want to... I'll just, I'll just mention briefly, because we, we covered quite a lot of ground. I will just yes. mention briefly that um, there's a film out which I saw last week called Earth, One Amazing Day, which is pretty much what it sounds like. It's um, a documentary, um, you know, from dawn till dusk, around the world and into the night as well, of a series of, you know, amazing creatures and their struggle to survive, narrated by Robert Redford, um, who I presume turned up late, although he probably had his watch set forward. That's oh, yeah, my main yes. memory of him doing that. And, um, you know, it's, it, as you would expect with this sort of thing, it's, um, there is some sort of extraordinary photography of extraordinary animal. I don't think it adds anything particularly to the, uh, to the documentary format, but if what you want to do is just spend you know, 90 minutes or whatever it is watching incredible creatures from around the world and managing to stay alive against extraordinary odds and being photographed in absolute high definition whilst Robert Redford sort of talks through them in a in a, in a slightly Johnny Morrissey sort of way, then that's absolutely fine. The other thing to say is that... Um, uh, so it's Johnny Morris, 
Which you've, it's a Johnny Morrissey, so it might. No, I said Johnny Morrissey sort of. No, yeah, Johnny yeah. Mor- Johnny Morrissey, Johnny Morrissey. Exactly. Have you heard the new Morrissey single? Yes, it's, it's, on, the, it's on the A list. It's on the radio A list. It sounds as though it does sound like it's a spitting image. It does, uh, doesn't doing, it? Doing Morrissey. Yeah, it's rubbish, isn't it? Well, I support all uh, Radio Two music choices. Yeah, but it's rubbish, isn't it? Well, I sta- I've already told you where I stand on uh, on Morrissey. I like the first couple of Smiths albums. I like Boner Drag, and that's it. Mm. Well, I'm, you know, I thought it was poo. Um, anyway, uh, and also there is a theatrical reissue of uh, North by Northwest, which I mentioned because I do this uh, show at the BFI, and we d- we did this thing. We did this th- it was the thing at the end of the show, which is sound and music. Am I not involved in that? We, I mean, I've invited you enough times, but you, the problem no, I don't is... want to be invited. I want to be involved. I yeah, here's the problem, what? Simon. It's on between 6.30 and 8 o'clock oh, on yeah. a Monday night, and oh. you are always playing all the hits, all the hits, all the hits. And Morrissey. At that point, and Morrissey. Um, that single is poo. That's and um, Anyway, carry on. You're at the VFI. Yeah. In... And we showed... Because we always end with a clip, which is, you know, sound and vision, which we, we show something that's been music, and it is a clip. Or we just show the opening titles, which are designed by Saul Bass and have the you know, brilliant Bernard Herman score. And it's just a, ter- it, it's a terrific opening, and it reminded me that I haven't seen North by Northwest on the big screen in a long time. Mm. And you have to imagine lines about that. Good sunglasses. Pardon me. Good sunglasses in North by Northwest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, fantastic. Well, fantastic everything. Anyway, I haven't seen it projected on a big screen for a very long time, so I'm going to go and see that reprojected this week. Sounds nice. Oh, well done for doing that. I'm sorry I didn't realise you'd done that. Thanks very much, yeah. Top production team. Oh, yeah, yeah. It wasn't me, was it? It just No, and it wasn't you at all. You were off talking about Radio 2. Anyway, and now it brings us time beautifully... Beautifully. ...to our DVD of the week. What's that? (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, wow, this just in. News of an amazing discovery from Egypt reaches us, Mark. Go on. They've cracked open a tomb and found a mummy covered in chocolate and nuts. Apparently, it's a Pharaoh Rocher. It used to be quite hard to get into tombs like that, but the modern <laughs> method the mod shush. The modern method is much simpler. You just toot and come in. Very good. All of which leads the more perceptive listener to infer that one of the choices for this week's DVD of the week is the mummy. Not, or as we called it, Tom Cruise. Not that one. The nineteen thirty two one. Oh, because the, the Mummy Mummy is out as well quite soon, isn't it? I know. I was oh, trying no, I was trying to catch you out. Oh sorry, okay. Trying to catch you out. Obviously, it's not the 1932 one. It's the rubbish one. It is. It's the Tom Cruise one. Yes. Yeah, fine. That's right. But you were spoiling my ad. I'm so sorry. Uh, But what's Mark going to pick then? Uh, Gary Bates says, The Princess Bride, no contest. Plus, it's a chance to hear one of Simon's impressions. Go on. I don't do... I'm not a performing monkey. Yes, you are. I'm not going to do Peter Yes, you are. Go on. I'm not going to do that. Very good. You're like the dancing chicken on the hot tin that Colonel Tom Parker used to put on the bar, allegedly. Morag Ingham, my four-year-old daycare's teacher, has clearly not seen The Princess Bride. Cue much confusion at being accused of killing someone's father and having to prepare her soul for the hereafter. She equally did not understand why my son was now going by the name of Inigo Montoya. I did not explain. Uh, Isroy says, Princess Bride, timeless classic with quotes so deadly you can't even take a plane with them on a T-shirt. 
which is a new well story. Done, well done, well done. Very good. Johnny O'Brien, it has to be the Flintstones in Viva Rock Vegas. Mark talks about its brilliance more than The Exorcist, Silent Running and Jeremy. Does he? And Catherine Todd, of those listed, my favourite has to be In This Corner of the World. Beautifully understated way of explaining such a tragic situation. But what is our DVD of the week? Because we had that fantastic letter about the young man who wasn't allowed on the plane because his T-shirt said... My name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. Yes. I'm going to go for the Princess Bride. I think it's it's Blu-ray that it's out on. I was um, going to say because lots of people have already got this. I know, DVD. I know, but we've never picked it as DVD of the week before, and it's a funny old week. And and I just, you know, yes, let's go for the Princess Bride because it is lovely. It is lovely. It is fabulous. So let's go for the Princess Bride. All right, if you say so, I entirely agree with everything that you said. Thank you. Mark, you've been fabulous. And can I just say, I hope mm. you have a lovely half-term break. Yes, I hope you have a lovely half-term break. Are you actually having a break? No, I'm carrying on working. OK. But I'm not obviously working on this show because it's Sanjeev's turn to sit in this chair. Yes. but And we hope that... Uh, and so is it Sanjeev and... It is, and Clarice Lockery. Clarice Lockery, and we hope that they will be brilliant, but, but not... not too brilliant. Correct. We hope they'll be quite good. Quite good... With with a, with a promise for more, but but not, but not fully realised. But yet. not too much. A promise. a promise that maybe in ten years' time, yes, they might be in able. Fifteen years' time, <laughs> maybe one day, if they keep on just going. chiseling away at it. Yeah. So all the best to them. Yes. <laughs> anyway, so we're... how insecure and pathetic are we? Very and very. Very and very. Off you go.